This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared it's not liminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Oh, I marched to the Battle of New Orleans at the end of the early British War. Started growing, the young blood started flowing, but I ain't marching anymore. For I killed my share of engines in a thousand different fights. I was there at the little big horn. I heard many men lying, I saw many more dying, but I ain't marching anymore. It's always the old to lead us to the war. Always the young to fall Now look at all we've won with the saber and the gun Tell me is it worth it all For I stole California from the Mexican land Fought in the bloody civil war Yes, I even killed my brothers and so many others But I ain't marching anymore to the battles of the German trench in a war that was bound to end all wars. Oh, I must have killed a million men and now they want me back again, but I ain't marching anymore. It's always the old to lead us to the wars, always the young to fall. Now look at all we've won with a saber and a gun. Tell me, is it worth it all? For I flew the final mission in the Japanese sky Set off the mighty mushroom roar When I saw the cities burning I knew that I was learning That I ain't marching anymore Now the labor leaders screaming When they close the missile plant United Fruit screams at the Cuban shore. Call it peace or call it treason, call it love or call it reason. But I ain't marching anymore. No, I ain't marching anymore. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad. Episode 113. I'm your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khalid. And today, we are returning, after not very long, back to the well of sus 1960s musicians. <laughs> yeah. Right, Khalid? Yes. Yeah. I think in, in, our, in our last Q&A, we had a couple questions that... Um, are kind yes. of uh, related to today's topic. Yeah, sort of inspired us to delve into this, although we had this on the list for a while, I think. Um, this was on the list for a while because this this hits a lot of the SJ research sweet spots. I yeah, think. more than I expected, um, not Same. really knowing too much about this person uh, beforehand. I, I knew a bit. What I had heard I had, from you. Yeah, I remember... I, uh, yeah. I remember you sharing 
uh, one of this person, uh, Phil Oaks, uh, songs with me. Like, I remember you showing me, like, Love Me, I'm a Liberal, um, which... Oh, yes. Yeah, like, years ago, um, which, you know... I think because I... I, Yeah, yeah. probably, like, 2010, I think somebody has showed me Phil Oaks for the first time, and I really love that song because it is... It is pretty funny, and it's yeah. pretty. Ev- it's a pretty evergreen satirical yes. takedown of the libs yeah, from a kind of leftist perspective. I'm surprised it hasn't been discovered by like MAGA people, uh, you know, because they love to do that thing where, like, if they hear someone critique liberals, they think that they're like a conservative or something, because it really is yeah. like a searing critique of of liberals. Well, to like, be fair, know, liberals do that too. Um, yeah. Like, like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. true. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's definitely true. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. you know, I always see people posting like Malcolm X saying like, you know, white liberals, like, you know, criticizing them and like, like, do you think that Malcolm X like was a conservative? Like, you know, I mean, in some it's ways, literally maybe. in the first verse of the song, uh, you know? Yeah. Um, right. Yeah, I cried when uh, they shot Medgar Evers, you know. Yeah, um, but he got what was coming to him this time. Yeah, yeah I, right. I, I cried when they shot Mr. Kennedy as if I lost a father of mine. But Malcolm X got what was coming, <laughs> you know. Yeah. He got, he got what he asked for this time. So love yes. me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, actually, because, like, that, I think, kind of speaks to, like, uh, a few, like, preoccupations that, he had throughout his career like i think that you know i mean who who lived through those things i mean a lot of people live those through those things would become preoccupied with them especially if they were politically involved but you know jfk and you know there's a famous story that he did like sort of cry and just weep bitterly at jfk's death you know and was like deeply you know uh, affected by oh, it yes yeah we'll get into and, that today yeah. um right yes how he felt up and where uh, yeah was, exactly he uh, felt like he yeah <laughs> he felt Kennedy like he was, was assassinated he was, yeah it was really he felt like it was really a part of it you know he really felt that he felt uh, the way like yeah, yeah. He, he did feel like he was a part of it almost like it was like yes. a personal failing of his yeah <laughs> that, uh, he um, could have prevented but didn't yeah anyways not to get too ahead of ourselves uh by the way we are i guess we have to uh, give an apology to all the listeners that um because we have mispronounced this artist's name over and over again it is apparently phil oaks not phil ox as i always used to say I don't know where I got ox from. I think it's yeah. just, it, it's a I got it from to, you. So that one's yeah. on you. Uh, I, I, but I, I think I've done multiple, we've done multiple episodes where I've just called them Phil ox, Phil ox. So my apologies. Yeah, I mean, it kind of looks um, like that. Uh, you know, you, it like, kind of does. If you were and, saying or ox, that's, that has the letters O C, uh, H in it. So you'd say or ox, you wouldn't say or oaks. So I don't know. <laughs> But I guess, and it's kind of like an Ellis Island name, anyways, because he's actually his father was a from a family of Polish Jews, which I actually did not know. Um, right, and his mother was, I think, as his brother described it, a uh, nouveau riche woman from Scotland. Yeah, Prince Ray would be all over that one. Not only Bob Dylan, but also <laughs> Phil Oaks. That's like both. the tr- that's kind of the Trump combo, you know? Yeah, um, a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah, so, so yeah, Phil Oaks, I liked him i always liked him um i think when i discovered him probably yeah around like 2010 the first impression i think of people who listen to him is kind of like oh he's like early bob dylan except he stayed in the folk lane well mostly but he stayed in the folk lane and he also stayed in the political lane much longer than Dylan, who kind of went off in his own navel-gazy kind of poetic quest yeah. like after 
kind of after JFK got assassinated. But Phil Oakes rose to become one of the troubadours, one of the folk troubadours, uh, first in the bustling uh, Greenwich Village folk scene that yes. we've all heard so much about. And then later, like, basically uh, lending his voice almost kind of similar to the way Paul Robeson used to do before he got MK'd. Um, of going to like, you know, like civil rights rallies and like workers strikes and political th- events like that and yeah. playing for the people. And, you know, his songs, um, they were they were funny. They were biting. They were sarcastic. They were radical, I would say. Um, yeah. You know, I, even I compared mean, to somebody like Dylan, like he yeah. kind of was known for being more explicitly left wing. More explicit, yeah, I would say mm-hmm. for sure. Um, he did and, have a bunch of songs that are kind of, yeah, more lyrical like Bob Dylan. Uh, and the lyrics, you know, I think are, yeah, they, I mean, they are like the same caliber of some of those Dylan songs, like, you know, Crucifixion. Really, The War is Over yeah. is such a weird song. And you can yeah. see some of the, like, the, I don't know, like, the, uh, in, like, the, the volatility of the personality uh, in that song, I think. Like, and the sort of weird idea that's a seed of it that maybe we'll talk about. But, yeah, I mean, well, you know, I mean, Paul Robeson, what we say was MK'd, he was, like, poisoned, you know, like, right? He, like, he never, like, abandoned his political No, no, views, that's true. Right? That's true, yeah. yeah. I, we should uh, make that clear. When, yeah, when, yeah, when Paul Robeson was tortured, basically. Yeah into um, like not being able to have a musical uh, career or an activist career anymore. Yeah. Um, Phil yeah. Oaks had a somewhat similar trajectory in some way where he suffered with like, he struggled with, with mental illness, like uh, superficially, you know, who knows what the, the origins of it were or, or what went on, uh, what the nature Usually of it was, like whether it was drug depression. addiction or yeah, manic depression, manic depression like and alcoholism some, eventually yeah. got the better of him. But yeah, or if he too but, was MK'd, but he like well, hit like a weird like reactionary like sort of ironic turn. Like uh, that's the thing. I remember way. reading yeah. this years ago before I was kind of um, I guess SJ pilled myself, um, and I remember reading about him because his politics seemed so cool and I kind of vibed with them and it seemed like, oh, this guy was a real true, a true like musical warrior, you know, for the left and all this kind of stuff. But then I was like reading just like overviews of his biography and his last couple years of life took a very, very bizarre turn yes. by all accounts. And that's going to be like a lot of what we're going to try to dissect today. But in a nutshell, just so people know kind of how weird this is going to get uh, sometime around like 1974, 75, after a number of years of alcoholism um, and a very mysterious, brutal attack that he suffered in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania in 1973, he appeared to go through some kind of psychotic schizophrenic break and started telling people that Phil Oaks was dead, that he had been murdered by a right-wing anti-communist CIA operative named John Butler Train in the Chelsea Hotel on the summer solstice of 1975, and that now uh, the body of Phil Oaks was basically possessed by John Butler Train and th- therefore now he is trained and he is yes. like this this person with the exact opposite politics that Phil Oaks has basically had. Well, for we'll get into this, too, since his senior year of college, uh, when he sort of suddenly embraced 
as an ROTC kid uh, at uh, Ohio State, he suddenly embraced like radical left wing politics and folk and this kind of folk music that went along with it. But he just did this old, this huge reversal and started going around like freaking people out, saying like I am John Train, I killed Phil Oaks, and like Phil Oaks had to go and stuff like that. And not that long after that, he hanged himself in 1976 yeah. at the age of 35. Um, so, yeah, that's a weird trajectory um, yes. for, you know, a, a very talented 60s folk singer to go. Yes. I think as we've covered in previous music episodes, it's not exactly the most uh, unexpected kind of outcome for somebody in the music industry that tangled with radical politics. It's a strange you know, thing to happen in general. Uh, like usually, I mean, I don't think that even like people with, uh, BPD, which is often what it's sort of claimed that he dealt with. I mean, maybe some people, I don't think, I don't think it was BPD. I think it was bipolar. Yeah. That's, that's what I meant. Oh, I guess I, oh, the borderline yeah. oh, BPD is BPD. usually borderline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But, um, yeah, you're right. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I don't think people with bipolar, like usually have like a consistent, like alternate persona or where they like you know insist that they're like you know gonna be a a new person or like have this sort of yeah like that is like a very specific and weird thing i feel like and just yeah for it to go off the rails in the way that it did it seems like he also was like a like you know was drinking a lot uh, possibly i don't know using drugs i don't it's weird because he was also very like anti-drugs or sort of turned off by the increasing prevalence of drugs in the folk scene. The uh, one thing I can say about Phil Oaks is he, he was a man of uh, deep and rich uh, contradictions. I think on a lot of things, but you're right. Like that, that was one thing where it seems like he was often critical of the drug use that took over kind of the young left movement in the late sixties, almost on a tip that we've talked about before is like was flooding the anti-war movement with acid you know, yeah. was that really just a groovy accident that happened? You know, the like MK Ultra like escaped from the lab, or was it just MK Search? And this is like actually part of a kind of culture manipulation and like destabilization strategy that was going to kind of drive the left into a groovy ditch. Mm-hmm. You know, and so he he seemed at, at some point to be on the side of. You know, people shouldn't like he almost I mean, in his dress and appearance for most of the 60s, he almost embodied that like clean cut SDS kind of college radical look. Yeah. You know, it's like he cut his hair. He'd kind of wear that kind of almost corny kind of like very like early 60s normcore kind of outfit. Yeah. Kind of dressing like Woody Gunthrie in the Depression or just wearing like, you know, uh, like a uh, like a jet like a wool you know blazer or something you know looking like a beat like a kind of a well-dressed beatnik mm-hmm. and um and all that stuff but then at the same time he was one of the founders of the yippies with like yeah. abby hoffman and jerry rubin and even though i mean i mean they certainly weren't anti-drugs right mm-hmm. yeah they might not have been as singularly focused on dosing everybody as like the merry pranksters but they were pretty right. much that that was one of their like main planks was like 
the left should just embrace being like hippie freaks and like being on drugs and everyone should change their consciousness, man. You know, yeah. so I think they were generally in support of this. So it's weird that he was kind of like at the same time. And then he moved to California. Well, around I that feel time like, too. yeah, part of that was like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel like he kind of like there. I mean, the they went like a couple different like weird directions. The yippies weren't like, you know, as. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. They, like, I feel like they maybe started off being a bit different, and like there were different factions within them. Like, maybe he didn't yeah. realize. Like, I don't know at first, but yeah, um, that's true. That's true. But yeah, I guess that that's all a long way of kind of saying that I don't know what his engagement with drugs was, because unlike people like Judy Sill, who we just talked about, who was like, "Yeah, man, I did acid every day for a year and a half playing yeah. bass gigs," like. You know, or other people that were like, yeah, then I tried peyote. I mean, even the fucking Eagles were like, we went and did peyote, you know, and like you don't hear. It's kind of strange, actually. You don't hear him. I think we both read through a number of sources and I watched like the very I'll, I'll, I'll attack it more later. But like the official <laughs> documentary, um, which is very hard to track down, like you can only order it on DVD. But basically, like nobody mentions his that he was doing drugs. Yeah, which is in fact, odd. Yeah, in fact, he, like, I read through, like, uh, this book that sort of compiles a lot of his old writings that were sort of recovered, either unpublished manuscripts or things that he placed in newspapers, like, in his life, uh, and, it, you know, it's, it's published under the title, I'm Gonna Say It Now, which is a line from, you know, his song of, like, After I'm Gone, or whatever, I won't be able to say this, blah, 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 which is, you know, often uh, held up as, like, this kind of, you know, eerie, prophetic thing since he died so young and everything, but... Yeah, like, and in that, he often kind of, like, actually critiqued drugs. Like, this is just, like, a, just an example. Like, he wrote some liner notes for Changes uh, by uh, Jim and John, uh, or Jean, or Jean, for, uh, like, an oh, album Jean, for folkways. Yeah. yeah, Jim and Jean. And he said, The folk boom has come and gone like a plague. As the scene came to its inevitable shift, some resigned and officially became salesmen. Others became ethnic defenders of Mother Earth tradition, even though there were no attackers. Many grew their hair down to their wallets and jumped on the Beatle bandwagon and true hands across the sea spirit, palms upwards as usual. Practically everybody tried drugs. And, you know, yeah, that's just like one example of him kind of having like a sort of disdain for for drugs. Yeah, there is this one really scathing thing that he published. Again, kind of a critique of the folk scene about like how everyone was discovering that they were Native Americans uh, in addition to other things and he came up with like a point yeah he came up with like a point system where he said like so many absurd things happened that i was forced to make a second game called folk points here is an ingenious system to rate how in you are with the folk scene yeah, he published this in 1965 discovering indian blood in your past seven points uh saying Joni instead of joan five points saying that's not his real name you know three points was 13 until newsweek having ravi shankar in your collection four points <laughs> Being invited to Woodstock, New York for a weekend, 75 points. Being found without coterie outside Bernard's Cafe Espresso in Woodstock on a weekend, minus 75 points. Quitting a commercial folk group, growing long hair, and reforming into Liverpool Electric, 19 points. Having a Sing Out subscription, 1 point. Traveling to Hazard, Kentucky, Mississippi, or to the Georgia Sea Islands, 8 points. Going on a Zen diet, uh, 23 points. Being invited to a Beatle party in England, flying there with Skip James and turning on to LSD while showing Rudolf Nureyev your five-star rating in LSR. 3,000 points. <laughs> so, yeah. See, I mean, this guy was, like, funny. 
Yeah. Like, he has good rips on... He was very... That's why it kind of, like, disturbs people so much that he degenerated as hard as he did and kind of seemed to, like, lose the plot. But, like, in the 60s, he was very, very sharp. And kind of almost everybody says that about him. I did find, though, I had to do a control F of all different kinds of drugs in his uh, in the biography about him. Mm-hmm. Really no, no mentions of, like, LSD or acid, but I did find this that um, I guess this was probably around 68, 69. Phil was beginning to worry his friends. He was drinking more than ever, and he had picked up a Valium dependency after he was prescribed the drug to help calm his nerves. Uh, Neither incapacitated him, but both could make him unpleasant to be around. Phil had been using Valium since his Greenwich Village folk scene days, but always in small doses. He would typically take a Valium tablet and break it in half, or even in fourths, and use the small dose to help control his nervousness and stuttering during concerts. Only people actually seeing him take the drug would have known he was using it at all. And as a rule, he looked at Valium the same way he regarded other drugs, as substances that could hinder rather than open the mind. Nevertheless, after moving to California, Phil stepped up his intake of Valium, and his dependency became more apparent. On one occasion, while he was having breakfast with David Blue at Schwab's drugstore, Phil flew into a rage when he discovered that he was out of Valium and the druggist refused to sell him any. He settled down only after Blue offered him some of his supply. So, okay, so he was he, he was off those bars. You know, he was taking Valium since the early 60s. So, okay, so... We got that classic American problem of like, oh, I don't yeah. do drugs, but like I'm on Valium every single day. Yeah. And that's a barbiturate, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a benzo. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he was on benzos and booze uh, for most of his time. Kind of a different tack. You feel like fo- even folk singers or like country people are really into speed, but I guess he was all about the downers. Interesting. In every American community, you have varying shades of political opinion. One of the shadiest of these is the liberals. An outspoken group on many subjects. Ten degrees to the left of center in good times. Ten degrees to the right of center if it affects them personally. So here, then, is a lesson in safe logic. I cried when they shot Medgar Evers. Tears ran down my spine. And I cried when they shot Mr. Kennedy. As though I'd lost a father of mine. But Malcolm X got what was coming. He got what he asked for this time. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. Get it? (laughs) I go to civil rights rallies, and I put down the old D.A.R. D.A.R., that's the dykes of the American Revolution. (laughs) I love Harry and Sidney and Sammy. I hope every colored boy becomes a star But don't talk about revolution That's going a little bit too far So love me, love me, love me 
liberal. I cheered when Humphrey was chosen, my faith in the system restored. And I'm glad that the commies were thrown out from the AFL-CIO bar. And I love Puerto Ricans and Negroes as long as they don't move next door. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. Ah, the people of old Mississippi should all hang their heads in shame. Now I can't understand how their minds work. What's the matter, don't they watch Les Cray? But if you ask me to boss my children, I hope the cops take down your name. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. Yes, I read New Republic and Nation. I've learned to take every view. You know, I've memorized Lerner and Golden. I feel like I'm almost a Jew. But when it comes to times like Korea, there's no one more red, white, and blue. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. I vote for the Democratic Party. They want the UN to be strong. I attend all the Pete Seeger concerts. He sure gets me singing those songs. And I'll send all the money you ask for. But don't ask me to come on along. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. Sure, once I was young and impulsive, I wore every conceivable pin. Even went to socialist meetings, learned all the old union hymns. Ah, but I've grown older and wiser, and that's why I'm turning you in. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. I think maybe just to give us like a quick uh, overview, I'll issue another retraction to to the late great Dave McGowan, because I think we said in our Q and A episode that he didn't really talk about Phil Oaks or Judy Sill. Mm-hmm. But in ter- he actually, I went back and looked, and actually he does mention them literally back to back with each other. He has a couple pages about Judy Sill, kind of covering what we talked about. Um, and then a short, he, he didn't have a whole chapter about Phil Oaks, though I think Phil Oaks definitely could have deserved his own chapter, uh, a big one. So I, I'll just read like the tiny like, greatest hits of, um, of how McGowan characterized Phil Oaks before we can get in. Because every other source we're going to talk about, for the most part, is a very valorized, hagiographic, like the 60s, you know, kind of thing. So. Yeah. Okay, so McGowan, here's what McGowan wrote. Phil Oakes, a folk singer, songwriter, and political activist, was found hanged in his sister's home in Far Rockaway, New York, on April 9, 1976. Throughout his life, Oakes was one of the most overtly political of the 1960s rock and folk music stars. A regular attendee at anti-war, civil rights, and labor rallies, Oakes appeared to be at all times an unwavering political leftist. He named his first band the Singing Socialists. 
That all changed, however, and rather dramatically, in the months before his death. Born in El Paso, Texas, on December 19, 1940, Phil and his family moved frequently during the first few years of his life. His father, Dr. Jacob Oakes, had been drafted by the U.S. Army and assigned to various military hospitals in New York, New Mexico, and Texas. In 1943, Dr. Oakes was shipped overseas, returning two years later with a medical discharge. Upon his return, he was immediately institutionalized and didn't return to his family for another two years. During that time, he was subjected to every psychiatric, quote, treatment imaginable, including electroshock therapy. When he finally returned to his family in 1947, he was but a shell of his former self, described by Phil's sister as, quote, almost like a phantom. Beginning in the fall of 1956, Phil Oakes began attending Staunton Military Academy, the very same institution that future serial killer cult leader Gary Heidnick would attend just one year after Oakes graduated. Mm. During Phil's two years there, a friend and fellow band member was found swinging from the end of a rope. <laughs> and he puts in parentheses, I probably don't need to add here that the death was ruled a suicide. Okay. <laughs> um, but following graduation... Phil enrolled at Ohio State University, but not before, oddly enough, having a little plastic surgery done to alter his appearance. Doing such things, needless to say, was rather uncommon in 1958. We'll return to that in a second. That's weird. Uh, in early 1962, just months before his scheduled graduation, Oakes dropped out of college to pursue a career in music. By 1966, he had released three albums. In 1967, under the management of his brother, Michael Oakes, Phil moved out to L.A., Michael had begun working the previous year as an assistant to Billy James, who maintained a party house at 8504 Ridpath in, you guessed it, Laurel Canyon. As the 1970s rolled around, with, and with his career beginning to fade, Phil Oakes began to travel internationally, usually accompanied by vast quantities of booze and pills. Those travels included a visit to Chile, not long before the U.S.-sponsored coup that toppled Salvador Allende. In the summer of 1975, Phil Oakes' public persona abruptly changed. Adopting the name John Butler Train, Oakes proclaimed himself a CIA operative and presented himself as a belligerent right-wing thug. He told an interviewer that, quote, On the first day of summer 1975, Phil Oakes was murdered in the Chelsea Hotel by John Train. For the good of society's public and secret, he needed to be gotten rid of. That symbolic assassination on the summer solstice took place at the same hotel that Devin Wilson had flown out of just a few years earlier. One of Oakes's biographers would later write that Phil slash John actually believed he was a member of the CIA. Also in those final months of his life, Ox began compiling curious lists with entries that apparently reference U.S. biological warfare research. He gives a few examples here. Shellfish Toxin, Fort Detrick, Cobra Venom, Chantilly Racetrack, Hollow Silver Dollars, New York Cornell Hospital. <laughs> Many huh. years... Yeah, right? Uh, uh, and I was going to bring this up, but McGowan does. This is an inter interesting thing to keep in mind throughout the story. Many years before Oakes's metamorphosis, in an interesting bit of foreshadowing... Psychological warfare operative George Estabrooks explained in his book Hypnotism how U.S. intelligence agencies had been working to create the perfect spy. Quote, we and I think we've read this in our Estabrooks episode, but just to reiterate, we start with an excellent subject. We need a man or woman who is highly intelligent and physically tough. Then we start to develop a case of multiple personality through hyp hypnotism. In his normal waking state, which we will call personality A or PA, this individual will become a rabid communist. 
He will join the party, follow the party line, and make himself as objectionable as possible to the authorities. Note that he will be acting in good faith. He is a communist, or rather his PA is a communist, and will behave as such. Then we develop personality B, the secondary personality, the unconscious personality if you wish, although this is somewhat of a contradiction in terms. This personality is rabidly American and anti-communist. It has all the information possessed by PA, the normal personality, whereas PA does not have this advantage. My super spy plays his role as a communist in his waking state, aggressively, consistently, fearlessly, but his PB is a loyal American, and PB has all the memories of PA. As a loyal American, he will not hesitate to divulge those memories. So Estabrooks never explained what would happen if the programming were to go haywire and personality B were to emerge and become the conscious personality, but my guess is that such a person would be considered a severe liability and would be treated accordingly. They might even find themselves swinging from the end of a rope. Phil Oakes was 35 at the time of his death. So that's a hypothesis right there. Yeah. And it does map somewhat cleanly onto the trajectory of Phil Oakes's life and kind of deterioration. Now, there, mm-hmm. there's other things that uh, could be said about like his final days and maybe even his quote-unquote mental illness itself. This also harks back to, I think, all the stuff we were just saying about the Unabomber, Ted yeah. Kaczynski, and talking about the idea of mental illness and in, are you a nut? Are you insane? You know, yeah. uh, I think that in Phil Oaks's case, he was definitely kind of uh, unhinged at the end. But yes. I, th- but it's like, uh, the, he, okay, so more so than I think <laughs> Ted Kaczynski is to this day. Like you know, in terms of just like uh, practical or uh, like microcosmic things, like just his demeanor like his affect his ability to like speak cogently like i listened to that sort of the last interview that he gave as john train and like you know just the way that he speaks like ted kaczynski like it's a different situation where like you know uh he's very uh opposed to kaczynski that is as opposed to like any characterization of him as insane and like he can make an argument like that he's doing what he's doing based on political convictions which I think, you know, is something is a bit more valid to to consider. You know, we uh, said our piece about Kaczynski like in that episode, but, uh, you know, and like uh, the merits of like some of his views and, and everything that was going on with him and his background and things. But, um, you know, it's just very different from uh, the like train slash Oaks as he appears like in those interviews where he's just like floating wildly from topic to topic, you know, having these kind of like weird grandiose fantasies of like calling up uh, Muhammad Ali and like uh, talking yeah. to him and like uh, and getting take, Ramsey yeah. like managing Ramsey Clark's campaign for president yeah yeah <laughs> and like some really of the all themes over the place. I mean some of the themes are things that he was in like invested in throughout his whole career like fi- I mean so fame celebrity like fights uh yeah. you know or sort of a like athletic uh you know combat type stuff and you know Cowboys. and also like presidential campaigns yeah he's obsessed with john wayne you know one of the things that he scribbled like you know later on in his life was like this idea to like a, a concert to save new york or something and he he seemed to always like return to this idea of like assembling all of these big celebrities together 
to like save the day somehow like uh somehow like get like putting celebrities together like for a while it was all about getting Che Guevara's brain into Elvis's body and things like that you know like yeah. uh that was like a, a fascination of his and it seemed to like come out in that uh sort of you know uh scrambled state but I mean it's it's it, he's very different just like in the practicalities of like you know uh being able to speak uh in a sort of lucid way like even uh like even we are able to stay more on topic than you know <laughs> or even we are able to follow like a single line of conversation better than than he's able to uh, at the end no um, totally totally yeah. and i think what's what's notable and kind of like a, a difference between say like him and the unabomber is that you really see like the deteriorate the psychological kind of deterioration over the course of like the last five or maybe five six seven years of his life compared to how he would talk in interviews and like the banter he would give at concerts and the kind of clarity of his songwriting and stuff like that mm -hmm. he seemed to be very very like with it and then he's kind of talking like joe biden like at the end and he's only 35 you know yeah and a lot of that of course is is the coof juice um yeah you know, i mean it's arguably legal. yeah it, it, it is the destroyer of many an artist yeah um, i think yes definitely but also like one thing that's like tricky about the phil oaks narrative i mean first of all he's not he's well known but there isn't like a huge fount of of kind of information about him so what yeah. you're left with are these very kind of hagiographical kind of accounts that want to dress him up almost as like the perfect tragic 1960s folk hero yeah and like literally uh, like folk hero and like, like folk kind of, martyr yeah it kind of actually like there's a mythology that i think was really in his own mind but also like a lot of the sort of uh treatments of his life play into is sort of the dichotomy between him and dylan like even as you said yeah. like the idea that they like both split off into different two different things and uh in one of the documentaries that i watched uh chords of fame right which mm -hmm. is like this weird kind of like i think you, you call it like a pbs type thing it's weird because it's like reenactments and stuff and they have like someone it's playing like a docu play it's yeah, like a televised docu play yeah kind of thing. right and i think it's from the 80s yeah, it's a weird, like, little documentary, but, uh, you know, they even say that he was, like, he was basically obsessed with Dylan, and he, um, you know, was always kind of bitter that he didn't have the same success as Dylan had, which I think does kind of bear itself out in some of his writings and in some of his statements that there was, like, a little bit of a fixation with Dylan. But, I mean, like, you know, in order to be, like, in that world, I mean, we'll go into this maybe a little bit, like, you know, his... uh like in order to just like want to be like a folk star which i think he did you know it wasn't just like he was doing this in like sort of a, a selfless way where it's like this is the best way to reach people you know like he definitely had like the motivation to be he wanted fame in some way um everybody says that about him like yeah. everybody that knew him um and i watched uh i think it was there but for fortune is the kind of official 2010 documentary yeah. that was made about him that interviewed all these people that knew him and also people that definitely didn't like Sean Penn and Christopher Hitchens who were yeah. just like shoehorned into it. It's a very like vanity documentary that has, if you thought the Eagles documentary was boomerang, <laughs> like you have no idea. Like yeah. it, it is I wish so... I had watched it now if it was. Yeah, that's right. I sent that. you like the torrent file of it because yeah. you can't stream it anywhere. I guess they, they, they don't want people seeing it. For <laughs> 
uh, you know, it's like very glossed over. I mean, you know, it has to talk about the John Train thing. And it does have like good, it has video of him being John Train and yeah. also like earlier footage of him. So it was good to watch for that. But like the talking head commentary, it did this thing that all these like, I think the documentaries kind of evolved a little bit when they got better production values. But I feel like particularly in the 2000s, there's a very kind of like, like tacky like hype promotional kind of style of documentary i think even like we live in public is an example even though i think that's like a good documentary but like the talking heads in that yeah. they're always like it was the early days of the internet man yeah. <laughs> like you think like a modem could or like uh, josh harris like they always have something so witty and like re- well rehearsed like a soundbite mm-hmm. to like throw out at like the interviewer and they're just speaking in these like generalities and like in this case it, it it's like you know like the 50s but that eisenhower stuff was over like the 60s were starting jfk was president like the jetsons were on tv <laughs> and us kids were ready to like go wild and like cut to like footage of like a rock and roll sock hop like just like really obvious <laughs> it, it hits all the stereotypes of like the 60s yeah. like from a boomer perspective it's yeah and, basically like uh, the mixed same, with yeah. uh, mixed yeah. with a very kind of like crunchy granola nostalgia for like the purity of like the 1960s like Greenwich Village folk scene and just how like oh they went on civil rights marches which is you know obviously it was like that was good yeah. like I, I think well it's great I mean that they were I would also uh, say that like struggling for yeah I mean progressive I would, causes right stuff. right no the aspects of it that were like positive like the you know the the support for civil rights and the political involvement that some of those figures had like definitely was good but I think that like, you know, I think that the, the corruption of like that good seed that was there and like the sort of you know direction that like that went in is like was a big factor in what like drove him like Phil Oaks ultimately like it, like crazy. <laughs> like, uh, Over the edge. yeah, yeah, I think, well, you know, and I mean, yeah. You know, like, that's not to say that it wasn't, like, that there weren't, like, uh, MK, like, aspects to it either. Like, that it was just, like, you know, this uh, sort of tragic narrative of, uh, you know, disillusionment or whatever. I think that, like, you know, parts of that were, like, by design. Like, I think that a lot of that was, like, stage managed, like, some of the, you know, the aspects of that whole scene. But, yeah, I think that, you know, like, he seems to have, like, a real, like, loathing for it in a lot of respects, like, what, what happens. And I think, yeah, some of it is like I said, maybe bitterness, like towards like certain figures like in it. But yeah, it's, it's, yeah. yeah. I mean, he did have a complicated relationship, I think with Bob Dylan, they were friends at first, like in the early sixties when Dylan was kind of coming up. And then I think they shared the same manager for a while. Was that, uh, Albert Grossman? Grossman, Yeah. Albert Grossman. And he then eventually too, right? Like he did. Yeah. Like not just Dylan, but a couple of, of big like folk figures yeah the, i mean there were a lot of people kind of floating around like scooping up this talent in the early 60s you also had joan baez who yeah. kind of comes from definitely a like weird scenes like mm-hmm. a, like a top tier like weird scenes kind of family i think her father was a scientist who worked on some kind of top secret shit with the pentagon and then i think was an mit professor I had an Alex Constantine book that talked about like Joan Baez and Phil Oaks kind of side by side as, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or basically not necessarily saying like Joan Baez was like an op, but <laughs> that she was somebody who had like inside, you know, got to see up close, like 
kind of how the sausage was made and was kind of like rebelling in her own way against it, but also knew that there's like, she inherently knew there were limits and that, you know, you can only go so far, <clears throat> go so far if you wanted to have like a real career. And I guess she did get kind of soft blacklisted in some respects for being like outspoken and political. But anyways, I mean, this whole folk scene, I think, I think we got to examine it a little more closely as we've done with <laughs> like the San Francisco psychedelic scene and like the Grateful Dead and like Palo Alto as we've done with Laurel Canyon and all of those weird scenes that were going, you know, a, a little bit later in the 60s, right? Mm -hmm. But like before those things really kicked off, the really hot music scene that all the hip beats and other people were focused on was this Greenwich Village like folk rock scene? Yeah. Um. I guess there was that Cambridge Club too that we talked about. Yeah. I think. Sure, I remember you that. Know, yeah. uh, that Joan Baez played at, and I forget what the the guy in the I think McGowan went into it, but the guy who ran that club had like a weird yeah kind of background, so and of course Cambridge. Him. You know, I don't know. It was like Henry Murray going to like the folk club and like enjoying <laughs> the jams in between, like psychologically torturing Ted Kaczynski in 1962, or like going there on acid. You know, yeah, I'm trying. I to mean, I think Tim Leary hung out there, and all the like, all the psychedelic people. They're even though they didn't, they seem to be some. I don't know actually. I I don't know if I can say that they were totally separate worlds, but I felt like in a way, maybe, they actually kind of hatched from the same place, but mm -hmm. then went off on like different trajectories for a few years, and then they eventually like reunited and became kind of psychedelic folk rock in the late 60s. Because if you think about it, right? Like, yeah. Like, at the remember we read, uh, we just read that, like, Bureau of Narcotics memo that was in Alston Chase's book mm -hmm. where it described the top-down distribution of LSD in the early 60s. Right. And how they were saying that, like, the, the origins of this drug is, like, in university towns, among intellectuals and people of high status that are giving it out and then, you know, mid-level people, upperclassmen, give it to lowerclassmen, et cetera. And so since we know that Tim Leary was literally giving it to undergrads, like in 1961, 62, with the full endorsement of Henry Murray, and that Cambridge, Massachusetts, also had one of the earliest, like, uh, like folk beatnik clubs that Joan yeah. Baez was playing at, and then that eventually just sort of like spread down or, or I guess, you know, sort of like it definitely had a strong connection to like Greenwich Village and that whole scene. But then it's not like everybody in Greenwich Village, like it's not like everybody was taking acid in like 1962 in Greenwich Village. But there but there were like some people like, say, Allen Ginsberg floating around who had mm -hmm. taken LSD, maybe he gave out some of it to his friends, you know, but I think it was on a very uh, low level at that point. And then it kind of like between the Milberg Institute or the Milberg Estate and Palo Alto and Los Angeles and the Merry Pranksters, they started like spreading it around the country as folk music was coming up as this kind of a really a little bit more sober, political, like earnest kind of music movement. But then in Laurel Canyon, you get like the combo with I think the birds kind of uh, represent it quite well, right? I mean, yeah. they literally well, I mean, blow up like with a Bob Dylan song, but like psychedelic, electric, and like soaked in acid. Right. And I mean, then, we can't neglect either like, you know, the 
transatlantic connection of like the Beatles, like you know, uh, and their oh the Beatles influence, yeah, the, the Beatles. Beatles uh, well, they yeah. started doing acid around what nineteen sixty five. Um, yeah, I, think. I guess so. And di- uh, didn't Bob Dylan give it the, either? The, either they Bob Dylan gave them acid or yeah I watched yeah, some it was of that like recent versa. Beatles thing I mean we have to do like a sus Beatles episode at some point because they're like we incredibly really sus but um yeah I watched that Beatles documentary and one thing that came through is that they were like obsessed with Bob Dylan too so uh yeah they seemed to have like some relationship and there was even some talk that like Bob Dylan was going to come in and join the bands like uh you know instead huh. of someone else I forget who they're kicking out at any given time but Anyway, uh, yeah, like uh, that. I mean, obviously, that was like a huge part of everyone's consciousness was like the Beatles. I mean, Phil Oaks even mentions them as being like the like, you know, sort of uh, uh, catalyst for a lot of these changes that were happening. Even like there seems to be. Was he a Beatles? Was he kind of a Beatles hater a little bit? He was a little bit of a Beatles hater. He was like kind of like, you know, I mean, there's a couple of people who he went back and forth of like Pete Seeger, you know, like in Love Me, I'm a Liberal. He talks shit about Pete Seeger. But he also like had a certain admiration for him uh, that comes through in other cases. Um, and yeah, Pete Seeger covered one of his songs, so they were like ultimately yeah. cool. Um, I feel like it's more of a dig on people that like go listen to Pete Seeger but aren't really like taking yeah. him seriously kind of thing. I mean, but still, like, but if someone some, was some like, people I'm an asshole and I listen to Subliminal Jihad, like, you know, it's still kind of like Fair if enough. one of our friends did that, we'd be like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. 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 <laughs> but, I love uh, to listen to SJ. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Like, <laughs> I think everything is a gin. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Like, yeah, Jimmy, um, don't get any ideas. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, actually, but, wait, hold up, just fact check real quick that because uh, I know I've, I've read this before that actually um, Bob Dylan did not introduce them the Beatles to LSD. He introduced them to weed in 1964, and then they might revolver, which is psychedelic, uh, might and blah blah blah. Cool. But no, oh, this is actually Rubber Soul, right? That was like a big. Phil Oaks mentioned that in his like uh, in one in an article of his because that was like a big turning point because it was like the first album that was like a work of yeah, art in concept. and of itself. And Aquino, <sighs> like you know, used to call everybody got fucking MK'd by Rubber Soul. Soul. Uh, yeah, everyone yeah. got M- like Brian Wilson got absolutely MK'd by Rubber Soul. I mean, it, it produced Pet Sounds. That's yeah, good. but right. like he, it, it was like he they drove them insane with like how and when you listen to it, just like oh yeah, this is like a good Beatles record, I guess. Like. It, I don't know. I'm not really seeing like the cohesive concept like behind it at all. I mean, it's weird. Like, but I guess people saw that in it. Whatever. Who am I to judge? But anyways, uh, actually, speaking of Jimmy, I just wanted to read. Somebody posted mm-hmm. this on Quora, uh-huh. so I'm just gonna assume it's true. But uh, actually, the person who introduced John and George to LSD was a dentist named Doctor Bob. Hmm. Dentist. A psychedelic dentist. Um, wow. Dr. Bob yeah. Beatles LSD. Well, dentists are like, you know, the ultimate purveyors Dr. Robert. of some of these drugs. Yeah. Mm. Dr. Yeah. Robert on uh, on the album Revolver was yeah. uh, about, I think, uh, Dr. Bob. <laughs> wow. Yeah, this is actually a passage from um, an article that he, uh, Phil Oaks wrote for um, the Village Voice called Man Against Music, or Before I'd Be a Slave, I'd Want to Know Exactly What's in It for Number One. Uh, it was written for the Village Voice in 1966. Um, 
And uh, he says, there is a new electric rock group sweeping the village known as the Potted Flowers, which consists of a tulip, a daffodil, a dandelion, a carnation, and a black orchid. Who'd have thunk it? Electric Flowers. Their first appearance only last night has caused such a sensation that they have already been signed by seven companies, and some have gone so far as to label them the American Beatles. Their strength seems to be that they are so typical of the frantic village music scene that they have become an overnight symbol of the times. Many passers-by in McDougal Street were overheard to say, Listen to that volume, Stokely. There's no mistaking them. They're flowers, all right. Growing their petals extra long, hooking their very stems into amps, they have scientifically improved on nature to such an extravagant extent that some patrons inside the club almost mistook them for weeds. By the way, the basic conflict in this theme is man against music. Before the era of the potted flowers, music was created in a less frenetic and more human environment. For example, Hank Williams, sitting in his garage with his tape recorder and acoustic guitar, produced more music than all the village rock groups put together. To a certain extent, partially because it is a new idiom, many groups intending to become the masters of volume have instead become the prisoners of noise. And then he has a section called Inviting Murder. The group should understand that if good music amplified is great, lousy music amplified is grotesque, thus inviting murder. For the electric music to have a real value, the exuberance must be balanced by a sense of control, and the loudness must be executed with a sense of beauty. There is no reason why electricity has to be equated with insensitivity. Hank Williams was dealing with something more powerful than a speaker, that is, an individual sense of music and an intangible communication with his own private muse, an infusion of his own personality into his music. The commercial folk boom, in spite of its mass success and influence on their forms of music, seemed almost incapable of producing truly creative artists and so it avoided the classic disciplines required of all music. During those years, I was always disturbed that I could never really get turned on artistically by the folk scene except for the vocal timber of Joan Baez and the complete Bob Dylan whirlwind. In terms of commercial groups, I think the only one that ever went beyond the arrangements of the vital music was Gibson and Camp. I think uh, John Gibson, at least, was managed by uh, Andrew Grossman as well, or, or Albert Grossman, who unfortunately mm -hmm. never got the widespread recognition they deserved. Through these recent years, the major aesthetic achievements on the musical scene has been in the form of individual recordings like The Righteous Brothers, You've Lost That Loving Feeling, Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone, The Rolling Stones' Satisfaction, Beach Boys' California Girls, The Beatles' Rubber Soul album, and now the Love and Spoonfill have legitimately stepped into the class of heavyweight groups with their recording of Summer in the City. And who can forget Barry Sadler, America's leading soul singer, offering us a new form of music, death. In view of such an erratic market, many people are asking, where is it all going? Many others are too high to care. I suspect it is all a fantastic plot, deviously designed so that the proceeds of all the marijuana sales in New York are actually supporting the war effort. <laughs> damn interesting yeah i mean i think uh, he's half joking but like that's kind of yeah he's definitely half joking but yeah maybe half not and then yeah he goes on to talk about the necessity of an aesthetic vigilante terrorist squad to deal with uh village electric music Wow, so he fell really hard on the, He was like the Ted Kaczynski of the folk scene. Like, <laughs> yeah, do kind plug, of. Don't yes. plug in. Electricity is Luciferian. Yeah. Like, don't do it. Yeah. This is evil. It's interesting that he equates, like, the loud... It's interesting that he draws a connection to, like, the, uh, the electric aspect of, like, using electricity as a medium or as, a, as an instrument almost, but then using it for violent means. Yeah. 
because I mean, a lot of, and then, you know, I mean, he sounds like he, if he had stuck around to hear punk music, I, he probably wouldn't have been a fan. No, probably not. <laughs> uh, yeah. It was, it was only going to get louder, but interesting. So he thought that was like replacing, but he also didn't, did he not also just say there that mo- like musically the folk scene was kind of uh, not artistically inspiring to him? Except yeah. for some of the singers. Right. Except for Joan Baez and Bob Dylan. Um, mm-hmm. He said that the only one that ever went beyond arrangements was Gibson and Camp in terms of commercial groups. I guess, you know, distinguishing that between from Bob Dylan and Joan Baez. Yeah. He's saying that in spite of its mass success and influence on their forms of music, it couldn't produce truly creative artists since it avoided the classic disciplines required of all music. All right. Yeah. I don't know. Huh. But um, so he. <sighs> So he kind of had like hypothetically like respect for like complex arrangement, like arran- like professionally yeah. arranged music and stuff like that. He was a clarinet player, you know, yes. when he was in high school. I think he was in the marching band yeah. mm-hmm. at the military academy um, where apparently he was friends with Barry Goldwater's son. Hmm. Oh, right. And yeah. also attended there with John Dean, the Watergate whistleblower. Yeah, he wanted to play his clarinet in, like, the marching band, right? Yeah. Yeah, he did. He was one of those people that really dove into music because he didn't have a very happy home life. um, Yeah, and he idolized, like, John Wayne, too, right? And he kind of... Yeah, we could talk about that for a second. ...into being patriotic. Uh, Well, actually, he kind of stayed. He was kind of like a Caleb Maupin type, in a way. Um, like, co- like like communism is patriotism kind of thing. Yeah, like, yeah, like um, the real patriots are Marxists. Leninist. Even though he was very slippery about what he, there, I've found quotes of his that definitively say he's not a Marxist, but like he's kind of a fellow traveler. But then he also like loved Salvador Allende and was like, it's so great that like a Marxist was democratically elected. So I guess he was kind of like a Bernie bro. Yeah, sort of. Um, like a dem sock kind of. I mean, he was really a new kind of a, a real a new leftist um, in the sense that, you know, they were supportive of like Cuba and they were kind of Mao curious and but really mm-hmm. not so much down with the old Communist Party or the Soviet Union or like yeah. the Eastern Bloc. Like they weren't hostile toward they weren't super trot and like hostile towards it. It doesn't seem. Yeah, it seemed like. I mean, even though he seemed to like idolize Kennedy in some way, like he, yeah. the, the best song of his, I think, is like uh, that I've heard, which is not many of them, is the like the ballad of the Bay of Pigs. Um, oh yeah, yeah, you know, really which is like an anti Bay of Pigs song, which I guess was one mm-hmm. of the first ones that he wrote in the chords of of Fame documentary. You know, like his friend talks about how when he first heard it, you know, he knew, realized that Phil was a songwriter. They found out those who survived. The CIA was wrong again. 
Defending my country's gold Who were the friends and who were the foes The headlines were lying, why wasn't I told? Repeat the first verse Thousand went to take the iron So forth And with the was and yeah but i think yeah his but his personality is interesting like leading up to college because of course yeah sure the the liberal sjw universities they brainwash you right. know they brainwash your kids in yeah. just like loving globalism and yeah being communist uh right. etc we mm-hmm. all know that but mm-hmm. you know growing up apparently his household was like deeply apolitical growing up like yeah. the parents like never taught his parents like had a very loveless bitter marriage the mom apparent his mother apparently was like very angry she felt like she got duped because uh, she had met the father in Scotland and he said that he was like rich and was going to be like a big successful doctor back in America so she married mm-hmm. him and moved to America and then he was like not a very successful doctor and then wow. during World War II he got sent to France and he had to operate like he had to be like a basically a field doctor during the Battle of the Bulge and that was the thing apparently according to legend that is the thing that caused him eventually to have a psych like a kind of nervous breakdown Hmm. after uh, maybe like a year overseas or whatever um, dealing with like dead bodies and dying people and all that stuff and then that's when he got thrown in a mental institution and like electroshocked and God knows what else and kind of seemed like a bit of like a vegetable, like uh, something like that, like a phantom, you know, his mm-hmm. sister said afterwards. Um, so I guess Phil kind of was like, you know, like classic kind of little boomer kid, uh, spent a lot of time uh, at the movies, you know, and he was he became obsessed with cowboy action stars like John yeah. Wayne and cowboy movies and stuff. And he also became obsessed when he started getting into music as a kid became obsessed with Elvis Presley yeah, and would remain kind of obsessed with these sort of cowboy figures pretty much throughout his entire life, which is a kind of interesting anachronistic. And maybe that was the original MK thing was to be like, like, look, it's the manifest destiny hero, like the lone gunman. I think so. <laughs> yeah. I think, it's yeah, you know, yeah. like it's kind of a, you know, a lot more people just made that point in the late 60s, but uh, but he still held on to that. It's like, and also, I guess the idea of like being a star, a lot of people said was very important to him. And he wanted to be like legit famous. And I guess he had a lot of confidence that I guess every time he would like make an album, he would tell people with like total conviction, like this is going to go to number one. This is going to be, and like his managers kind of said, look like most of us were kind of realistic about it like we all thought he was talented and valuable but like dude you're like a folk singer (laughs) like like you Mm -hmm. don't have necessarily the crossover appeal of like bob dylan or even maybe joan baez and like you're very political so like you're you're not gonna probably be like number one but he thought he was apparently and i guess maybe got disappointed when some of his records kind of when he watched especially when he watched dylan become this like superstar and kind of drop politics as he did it. And mm-hmm. I guess they got into some disagreements over that because Dylan kind of thought that, uh, that Phil Oaks was running from his own feelings, which is kind of interesting. 
mm-hmm. and instead like kind of burying himself in like political issues and writing political songs and doing benefits all the time. And Bob Dylan was like, you know, man, like you got to write about like uh, having being sensitive being and shit, tangled and, up like, in, being in, in love or whatever. Yeah, yeah being tangled in be. I mean, you know, yeah. Some of Bob Dylan's songs are just like so. I never really. I mean, I I think some of Bob Dylan's songs are well written, but like a lot of them, like a lot of his most popular ones are just like about nothing. Like tangled up in well, blue. What is that about? There's like two. That words was actually in the from his song. divorce album, Blood of the Oh, Trance. sorry. Um, so uh, it was actually from the early seventies. Right. So he's but, upset no, I, about I, being divorced. I see. Yes. Um, well, no, it's interesting because he did go in that direction very much like I was reminded of this uh, reading some of these sources that Bob Dylan gave a very weird press conference uh, in 1964 when he was awarded. It wasn't the ACLU, but it was some organization like it that had given him some kind of award for like his songwriting, uh, for standing up for like free speech. And that was where he kind of infamously said like, I, with all the things going on with like Lee Harvey Oswald and like I see a little bit of myself in Lee Har- in Lee Oswald and everyone was <laughs> like boo like everyone started <laughs> booing him and then after that he decided like I don't like this political shit and I feel like I'm being pressured to like be some kind of political spokesman and that's why you know he turned his back on being like the voice of a generation after that and then wrote and then blew up writing these kind of more personal songs but I think you're right I liked a lot of that when I was like young. I thought it was like cool and like literary and stuff. But if you listen to like I don't know, like Highway sixty one revisited or like Blonde on Blonde, which is still held up as like one of his greatest albums, like Blonde on Blonde is kind of like a jingle jangle nonsense album in a lot of there's some good songs yeah. out of it. I mean but I a think lot, that like, I everybody say... must get stoned. Yeah, I look oh, at the lyrics and take out of the blue right now. I looked at the lyrics take up the blue. It's a bit more, you know, I don't want people to get mad. It's a bit more like uh, elaborate than I than I remembered. Like no, I think I, like I was that confusing song, it with Lay Lady Lay. Lay Lady Lay. Well, I think Lay Lady is, what I was is just like of. a chill country song. That whole album. All right, all right. National well, Skyline, but, you just play it all the way through and it's like a chill vibe. What about knocking on heaven's door? Doesn't he just repeat knocking on the words knocking on heaven's door over and over? I'm not gonna lie, I hate that song. I hate that <laughs> yeah, like uh, and yeah, people but that were like, was an older wow, one too. I forget that might have been during his Christian phase. All right. But, you know, but like, look, look at like Gates of Eden. Gates of Eden is, is like trippy and fucking bizarre imagery yeah. and stuff. I always and like, like Chimes of Freedom. I always thought that was a good song, um, you know, but yeah. I always thought uh, it was a little lame, but. Oh, wow. Familiar. I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's okay, but like, you know, or maybe like a Blowing in the Wind. I mean, Blowing in the Wind is also like, that's a good song, but. You know, it it does kind of lack the punch of, uh, you know, Phil Oaks's like biting kind of satirical wit and like calling yeah. out. Though, also like I think there were times when, like for example, after I think it was yeah it was after Medgar Evers died, they both Phil Oaks and Bob Dylan like both did a song about it mm-hmm. right away. Yeah. Um. But the thing I was reading was kind of saying that. Honestly, because we I, I've put it uh, in, I think, the end of one of our episodes before Dylan wrote only a pawn in their game and Phil Oaks wrote like the ballad of Medgar Evers. Mm-hmm. It, and that was just like uh, kind of straight up like they killed him and he died. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, it was very like straight up and kind of mm-hmm. confrontational and it just describes like the crime basically. And then it says the country gained a killer and the country lost a man, 
you know. Okay. Yeah. Not bad. Fine. But I think like only upon other game is like a real banger because like it goes further than that and talks about how, like the system of racism and how like poor white people are like indoctrinated and they're like psyoped by mm-hmm. their politicians and religious leaders and businessmen into saying like you got more than the blacks, don't complain. You know, you better than them. Yeah. And then, you know, that's why, like, the little, like, pawn, like, when he dies, you know, his headstone will read his epitaph plain only upon in their game. Like, that, that's much more kind of like, oh, damn. So, I don't know. Sometimes Bob Dylan, when he really wanted to, could, like, knock one out of the park. But, or, you know, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. That's a good song about, like, nuclear apocalypse, kind of. Yeah. It's, like, vague and creepy and haunting and stuff. But then, yeah, yeah I don't know. Right. Like, the, like, you know, why is A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall that much better than Chimes of Freedom? You know, I feel like they're the same. They're both about, <laughs> they're both about weather, you know? Like, I, mean, I think on. A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall is, like, much more ominous and, like, I guess, like yeah. atmospheric than Chimes mm-hmm. of Freedom. Chimes, Chimes of, Freedom of Freedom feels like, bit, yeah. it, it's kind of, it's one Optimus of those ones that I feel like got played out. Like, I cringe a little bit when I hear that. Just how I yeah. cringe when I hear We Shall Overcome. Not because it's a bad song or it's not a great, you know, yeah. black spiritual or like whatever. But I just imagine a bunch of like old white boomers like marching <laughs> in like a pre-approved yeah. protest saying like, We Shall Overcome, you know, just like boring. <laughs> and it's like it's not changing anything. And like you're just, I mean, that's what the whole documentary, the 2010 documentary is, is like all yeah. these people about like we changed the world and like with our music like they they're so fond of the idea that like music can change the world and it did and that's what phil oaks believed and i mean for sure it can change the world music is a very powerful thing i don't think intelligence agencies would be fucking around it and meddling in it if it didn't have a power to change things right yeah um i mean and I think, you know, actually, like, speaking of, like, songs like A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall and I think, you know, uh, Chimes of Freedom to an extent and, uh, like, Only Upon Their Game, I think that they kind of have that sort of, yeah, like, there's a lyrical quality, like, there's a bit of abstraction, you know, I think the contrast between Only Upon the Game and The Ballad of Mega Revers, you know, and even really, like, you know, I feel like Chimes of Freedom, at least uh, in some of the ways it gets narrativized, is, like, sort of the response to, to Kennedy, uh, Kennedy's assassination, and I think, you know, I have mm-hmm. to say, speaking of like cringy things, I found Phil Ock's song about Kennedy Oaks. to be, or, sorry, Phil Oaks. Yes. His, uh, you're right. His, uh, his sort of, uh, that was the president song. Like, you know, it was a little bit cringy. I was, I was feeling a bit of solidarity. With oh Chomsky, yeah. He, he also like, did a song. memorial song. Yeah. Which some people said was like their fate that they thought it was the best Phil Oaks song, but I remember listening to it and I'm like. Eh. <laughs> yeah exactly it's no, like it, uh, yeah it, it gives you like a little bit like it, it makes you sympathize a bit with chomsky's like you know extreme uh dismissiveness of kennedy and his significance as a figure because like the uh you know honestly um, yeah a little bit yeah like, like, it kinda the, does, the like extreme like hagiography it's like he was a shining knight above the cra-. you know it's just like all right like calm down um <laughs> no it really like, is just like calm down guys like calm yeah down. like like the the 2010 documentary yeah maybe yeah, he protests of, a bit too much maybe he was feeling a little bit guilty um, um, yeah as we'll get to later <laughs> i think he's like really underselling the full scope of his feelings about kennedy's death by yeah. just kind of doing this very like boilerplate kind of song. Everything he might have done and all he could have been was proven by the tainted traitor's hand. For what other death could wound the hearts of so many men? That was the president. That was the man. 
the tainted wow. traitor's hand. See, even that Yeah, and is our dreams now, of peace were spoken with a gifted golden tongue. All right, like, you know. Uh, I mean, I, I did see here. He did pin himself down. He described himself as a, quote, left social democrat. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Uh, uh, it really is kind of a left social democrat. Yeah, but anyway, like on sort of that sort of uh, that contrast between like a you know more sort of straightforward song like that, it's just like you know Kennedy was so great, or the Ballad of Megar Evers, which is just like yeah they killed him, it was horrible. Like this is what happened. This is like you know why we should care. One of his like I think uh, I mean a song that I feel like he put a lot into uh, is the War Is Over, which is like a very strange song. And I think kind of epitomizes certain themes that he like returned to, like such as the idea of like the movies that we were just talking about. You yeah. Know? Silent soldiers on a silver screen, framed in fantasies and drugged in dreams. Unpaid actors of the mystery The mad director knows that freedom will not make you free And what's this got to do with me?
whistling marches as they mow the lawn. And the gargoyles only sit and grieve. The gypsy fortune teller told me that we've been to see. Well, it like, was also actually it was one of the first. It was con- that song was connected to one of the first attempts at almost like it really. They didn't call it situationism, but it was very much that. It was like political theater of the absurd, almost trying to his because he he held a rally called "The War Is Over" in yeah, like nineteen sixty seven. He was trying to meme it. People believe. Yeah, exactly. He was trying to meme the war into being actually over. Like if a bunch of people just yeah. decide that it's over, then it will be. Which is like kind of like. Yeah, like, I don't know, like, that's, like, I feel like if someone proposed that today about any one of the many wars that are currently going on, like, you would be, like, like, what's your problem? Like, you can't just, like... That's the hippiest shit I've ever heard. Yeah, like, like, you know, I mean, like, in a certain point, like, if, like, in a way, like, yeah, like, if people decided, like, you know, I do think that, like, if people really had the political will, like, to stop the Iraq war, like, maybe it would have been, like, in a way... You know, like, in a way, we all are, like, complicit in, like, these, like, exploitative systems, and there is, like, sort of, a, like, a consciousness shift that, like, one can conceive of that would maybe, like, you know, lead to, like, significant change, but I don't know, it's just, like, this weird, yeah, I mean, he, it seemed like he really thought, like, if I can just phrase it the right way, or, like, if I can, you know, like, just, yeah, like, meme this somehow and just, like, declare that the war is over, then we can make it happen. We can just end it, yeah. Um, well, it shows like the the thing that uh, definitely a lot of people have pointed out about kind of his like his political activities is he had this belief that so many people had in the 60s that it, it's kind of interesting. I guess it, maybe it's analogous to kind of like the Bernie phenomenon today. But you had people that were talking in uh, talking a very radical game in the early to mid 60s. And we're getting more and more radicalized. Like we talked about in our Tom Mosher episode about how when he was explaining, like, why did these SDS people start to embrace like Marxism and start like defending Mao and like Castro? And he explained he was certainly not a sympathetic, you know, narrator, but he explained, well, like they were getting involved in the civil rights struggles in the South and they were seeing like the war. And this kind of was like an organic dialectical process uh, like of a political evolution for a lot of people was mm-hmm. like every time they saw a peaceful avenue of struggle kind of shut down or roadblocked, they a lot of people decided to kind of escalate and escalate. But they still had they still had this kind of like Kennedy era optimism that if they went out in the streets and did enough performative protesting that the people in charge, you would either like shame them or you would like appeal to their conscience enough or even maybe just appeal to their com like their, their realism or something and force them to like be progressive. And for a while I can see why 
they kind of thought that because up until 1968, you had a number of figures that could possibly be that vessel of like reform, you know, for like a social democratic revamp of like America and maybe a break with the, uh, the right wing policies or whatever, um, that had been dominating. You had people like Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, uh, Malcolm X and, mm-hmm. and John Kennedy. And then by the end of 68, like they're all murdered, assassinated, like by the deep state. Yeah. And then like the, the movement behind them is like crushed and like scattered to the wind and kind of nobody knows where to go. And that's when you see like 1969 kind of everybody splinter off in like these weird directions and by kind of like er- the early seventies, like within a few years. And then you have like Kent state on top of that yeah. and you have Nixon come in and all this shit. And it just gets kind of scattered. And like Phil Oaks is like held up as an example of somebody whose psyche was kind of like broken by all these things. And part of it maybe was because he had this, a little bit of this cheery optimism that America could be like reasoned with, like the American establishment could be kind of, you could appeal to their morality and their better nature and the values of the, you know, the founding fathers or something, you know, their patriotism and stuff like that. And then the answer was a resounding fuck. No, no. Uh, how about operation chaos? The war is over is like a weird, like the idea of it, like the idea of declaring the war over on the song, the war is over are both like, it's even weirder than just the idea of like, you know, protest being effective, which is like, you know, a classic debate and like, yeah, like definitely uh, there's many uh, nuances to it. Like in some ways, like maybe in a lot of ways, no, but he even like indicts protesters as like part of the problem. Like that if people stop protesting and just decide the war is over, so there's nothing to protest then, like, that's, like, what we need to do. He says, like, angry artists painting angry signs use their vision just to blind the blind. Poison players of a grisly game. One is guilty and the other gets to point the blame. Pardon me if I refrain. I declare the war is over. It's over. <laughs> it's over. Like, huh. uh, Interesting. Yeah, it's uh, weird. Like, Sounds like yeah. a point of frustration, almost. That Yeah, exactly. He like, doesn't want to see the anti-war movement kind of be turned into like just this sort of like lifestyle thing and they're actually like contributing to the problem well he did say he uh, there was some uh, there's an audio tape of him talking about how nixon was successful in winning Mm -hmm. and like how he was able to get political support and it was interesting because it definitely like a lot of things with phil oaks it like kind of definitely resonates with today's politics where he basically broke down like look like the reason like we're in a a period of like intense kind of like counter-revolutionary activity right now as embodied by nixon but like he's gonna be but the way the left is responding to it is not necessarily gonna be to their advantage because basically what nixon is saying to like regular americans is like i'm a normal guy i'm just a normal person and if you basically if you don't have me you're gonna have these crazy hippie like woke tods you know, basically like running yeah. all of the government and they're absolutely crazy. And that was precisely at the time when it's weird, like his friends, the yippies were like running around and acting crazy and being super kind of absurdist and shocking and all that stuff. And, you know, really the Del Close approach to like revolution and just being like a sicko and <laughs> all that. And, and so he, but he, I think he was kind of, like he was right like uh, that was a a, i think a cogent um 
political analysis that like Nixon absolutely was uh, running against hippies, basically, and like yeah. promising that and, like even if you don't love me, I'm not a yeah. psycho hippie like SJW. Yes, you know, we're about to see that again uh, the next yeah, election. Yeah. Ain't nothing new, but. Uh, yeah, I think that he actually wrote this article for the Los Angeles Free Press in 1967 called Have Faith, the War is Over, which I think, like, illuminates, like, some of, like, what, yeah, he was thinking. And there's a lot of, like, just weird, like, telling quotes in here as well. Uh, he says, the war is over and what a relief. It sure was depressing, but now, thank God, we can celebrate. It has been called off from the bottom up, and now the only ones participating in it are those that still believe it exists. Now, some of you may not believe the war is over, and that, essentially, is the problem. The mysterious East has taught us the occult powers of the mind, and yet we go on accepting our paranoid president's notion that we are actually involved in a war in Asia. Nonsense. It's only a figment of our um, propagandized imagination, a psychodrama out of 1984. By this time, it must certainly be apparent that Johnson is absurd as compared to being wrong. It should also be crystal clear that the war has been extended so ridiculously long that it is more absurd than immoral, and that the standard moral arguments have been repeated so many times that they seem to have lost their meaning. There is no dialogue on the war, only the repetition of cliches. One outrage must be answered with another. Only absurdity can speak to the language of absurdity. Demonstrations should turn people on, not off. The spiritually depraved public of America has shown it won't stand for the blunt truth served in a negative platter which it always defensively assumes is insult. A protest demonstration does not satisfy the demands of modern mass communications. It is somehow out of tune with the electric age. A protest rally is an act of negation against an act of negation, canceling each other out. The Times demand a positive approach to demonstrations, a pro-life, joyful, energized, magnificently absurd demonstration against the sucking vacuum of war. The underground must discard the establishment labels like underground, hippie, flower children, and other assassination words. They've shown their colors. Now they must show their true strength. The trick is not to go against the establishment, but not to believe them. Come on now. Do you really believe that a war is being fought in this day and age? Certainly not a war that has anything to do with us. Why, that would be absurd, don't you think? On June 23rd, there is going to be a celebration of the end of the war. This celebration could be a love-in, a be-in, a to-be or not-to-be-in, a happen-in, a rally, a demonstration, an earthquake, a premature solstice, living theater, living movies, a huge Hollywood production, a statement of numbers that you can attend without insulting your aesthetic. The old standbys of the left and the attitudes they encompass should be avoided at this meeting. Classics like, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today are about as dated as an M16. Since the war is over, we should have positive signs like Johnson in 86, the peace president. Oh, sorry, 68. I keep doing this where I switch numbers anyway. In 68, the peace president. Welcome Hanoi to the great society. Thank you, Lyndon, for ending the war. As a living movie, everyone should do something creative and positive. Make up your own sign. Wear appropriate clothes to the theme of the reenactment of VE Day. Wave a flag and mean it. It's time for aesthetic rebellion, for creative anarchy, time for the use of surreal humor to ask what our country is doing. Johnson will be speaking at a $500 a plate dinner inside the Century Plaza Hotel, so we can have a penny a plate dinner outside the celebration. How ironic to have this bit actor give a report in the demented war while outside thousands are celebrating the end of the same war. Perhaps some people will wake up and say, hey, you guys must be crazy. There is a war going on. Don't you read the papers? To which you can reply, no, you're the one who's crazy. History will decide who is really absurd. 
we must realize that numbers and time are on our side, and the establishment needs us to fight this non-existent war. The one thing that will totally undermine Johnson's position is not to believe a word he is saying, to ignore the preposterous reality he has created for America and create our own reality. Let me repeat, if enough, of us, if enough of us truly believe the war is over, we have the power to change our reality. Belief and faith can move mountains. This dated and corrupt generation should be easy. Uh, hippies of the world uh, unite. You have nothing to lose but your paranoia. California is the most beautiful part of the country, and yet it has been taken over by the ugliest elements. Los Angeles is a plastic paradise, the exaggerated frontiersman of a decaying and materialist culture. This is the foundationless land of dreams, a studio posing as a city, a freak circus. What better place to make a bizarre stand? Without putting herself through any of the tasteless political changes of the East, LA has a golden opportunity to leap from total disinvolvement to the vanguard of the peace movement. The thousands of young people flowing through California would respond to a call for this kind of rally rather than another protest demonstration. The psychedelic community can also create in the framework of this living theater. Hopefully this will create an opportunity for the disparate elements of the state to merge gracefully. The war in Vietnam is an amphetamine trip, a reflection of the spiritual disease that has gripped this country and distorted every principle on which it was built. This is where we get into like patriotic socialism. This generation <laughs> must make a choice between the total rejection of the country and the decision to regain a spiritual balance. I believe there is still something inherent in the fiber of America worth saving that the fortunes of the entire world may well ride in the ability of young America to face the responsibilities of an old America gone mad. Old America has proven herself decadent enough to be willing to sacrifice one of her finest generations into a garbage truck of Cold War propaganda. What kind of depths have they sunk into to dishonor the very meaning of the word honor by asking young men to die for nothing? This is not my America. This is not my war. If there is going to be an America, there is no war. La guerre est finie. <laughs> All right. The criminal patriotism is very, of today. Yeah, did, he, did Baudrillard just steal his whole thing? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, the criminal patriotism of today demands that every citizen sell himself. And now we pay the consequences floundering in the jungles, not of Asia, but of New York to Los Angeles. Now we are the lost patrol who chase their chartered souls like old whores following tired armies. Have you heard? The war is over. So, yeah. And he wrote multiple articles about this. This kind of does seem to be like the moment where he sort of like <laughs> loses the pulse a little bit of like the people. I mean, I guess yeah. everybody like, you know, everybody lost the plot to some extent, but like the he gets very, very into this idea. And yeah. I don't know. Or, you know, maybe we just found out the way to stop Pooler. Yeah, I, right. Like, yes. Nope. Nope. War isn't happening. War yeah, isn't it's, happening. Not happening. it's not happening. It's not happening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll talk about like a post-truth world. Like, you know, I feel like yeah, he's exactly. literally telling people to like just like stand around and be like, "What are you talking about? There is no war." Like, do you, like <laughs> yeah, it's weird. There is no war. Like, what? The, yeah, it's weird to be like, "Hey, L.A. is this sort of like fake." you know, city that is actually like a studio lot that isn't real, that represents like the vacuous materialism of our decaying civilization. <laughs> so we should like embrace that and yeah. start completely operating in like a truth free environment. Like, yeah, basically. For, right. Yeah. Like and it's just trying to mean things like, into existence. Yeah. It's weird. It's kind of like, you know, pretending that nothing is going on is like exactly what, like 99% of people do now about wars. Yeah, it's actually interesting. Like back then it probably did seem like, you know, if people 
acted like the Vietnam War wasn't happening, that would be like, you know, this big thing. But now, like, in a way, that's like the sort of standard way that like America wages its wars is by like encouraging people to act like they're not happening. And to ignore I mean, it just sound, that, no that whole thing sounded like a justification of like extinction rebellion. Yeah. Like if we just say like it's not going to happen like and say no more, you know, then magically that's going to. Well, not even somehow. no more because there's nothing there's not even anything to say no more to because it's not happening. It's over. It yeah, would be like if right, extinction rebellion over. was we like won. the world isn't warming. <laughs> you're like, you know, yeah, that's like, true. Yeah, yeah actually, like global warming isn't happening. Everything's fine. Like, let's we like, save we, we save the world. We solve climate change. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, the let's celebrate climate change. I guess <laughs> the power of positive thinking. Yeah, right? but I feel like that would be sponsored by like BP <laughs> like, or something. You know, like that would be yeah. like the climate action like sponsored by like you know the yeah like the worst like I don't know fracking industries or like lumber or whatever like yeah no definitely back in 1949 they purged out all the communists and socialists and homosexuals out of the labor unions leaving behind virile american types who took major stands on all the major issues of the day and now i'd like to dedicate a song to george meany and other freedom fighters around the world Song called Legs on the Chain. Come your ranks of labor, come your union corps, and see if you remember the struggles of before. When you stand up with on the outside of the
watch your trucks, boys, while they're on the road. All that they are doing is all that you have shown. That you gotta strike, you gotta fight, get what you are owed. When you're building all your lips on the chain of the chain, when you're building all your lips on the chain, and the man who tries to tell you that they'll take your job away, he's the same man who was scamming hard just the other day, and you're here. Episodes in the late '60s that uh, are worth, I think, zooming in on a little bit. Um, I mean, the first one, well, well, one happened before the other. We'll talk about in a second. We can talk about Chicago, 1968, and like the huge impact that uh, that year had on Phil Oak, uh, Phil Oaks's psyche. But before mm-hmm. that. I think it was in, yeah, 1967. That was when Phil Oaks, I guess, started to get involved with the Yippies, with mm-hmm. Abby Hoffman, and I guess around this time, Jerry Rubin, who I always forget was from Berkeley. I always assumed he was like a New Yorker, but and I assumed he was like with Abby Hoffman from day one, but they actually sort of joined up. Uh, I think in 1967 with the National Mobilization Committee Against the War, Mm -hmm. known as the MOBE. And they hired a few people from uh, Jerry Rubin's posse. And then, so they brought some, like, some of that freak West Coast radical energy uh, over to the, like, Chicago people and the New York people, et cetera. You know, they did this big anti-war demonstration at the Pentagon in 1967 but the most interesting aspect about it i think from an sj perspective is <laughs> that i think we've mentioned this occurrence a few times before is uh, there was a a certain ritual that was performed during this demonstration right yes right of course. Uh, pretty much by the yippies um mm-hmm. where they a bunch of them attempted uh an exorcism of the Pentagon and also attempted to levitate it off the ground. I think as uh, Abby Hoffman put it, quote, we're going to raise the Pentagon 300 feet in the air. (laughs) And this is like a weird, this is again, this is like one of those like boomer sixties protest kind of like things that everyone loves to talk about and be like, cool. Like, yeah, we did groovy. And, like, we really showed them. And, of course, you know, 
listeners on the uh, Awara frequency here might know that, you know, anytime you're doing rituals, you know, whether you're a group of ghost hunters or you're Allen <laughs> Ginsberg and, yeah. uh, and Phil Oaks, who was there, um, and Abby Hoffman, you know, uh, it, it's just interesting. It's like an interesting idea. Now, I, I should say off the bat that, you know, I guess th- this was supposed to be an exorcism, like as in they were saying the Pentagon was satanic. Mm-hmm. Not, not true. Um, and it is a pentagram. So, yeah. you know, it's got that going for it. And so they were, the, you know, they wanted to drive the devils uh, out, you know, I guess as the way I found an interesting article, an oral history by Nancy Kirshen. And I think the way she described it, the the genesis of, um, let me see right here, yeah, the genesis of the Levitation Project. Um, so she said, by the time I arrived in New York, talks were proceeding with a whole range of people in the countercultural scene about participating in the Pentagon action, and there was great enthusiasm. Instead of behaving like the usual project director he was hired to be, Jerry was spending his time with his new friends planning a capital L levitation of the Pentagon. It had been discovered that the five-sided polygon <laughs> known as the Pentagon was a Baroque symbol of evil and oppression. So oh, what no. better than an exorcism? A group of, quote, holy men would encircle the Pentagon and conduct a ritual of drum beating, chanting incantations and incense that would raise the Pentagon a hundred feet in the air and exorcise the evil spirits. When we applied for a permit to exercise the Pentagon, it was reported in the mainstream media that the government said, okay, but no more than three feet off the ground. <laughs> no, why, no. why are they trading jokes with the government? Yeah. <laughs> like in reporting it in the media. like uh, Because it was <laughs> like laughable, I guess. Uh, I guess <laughs> I mean, so. I guess even they thought it was laughable. Yeah. So Aquino yeah, was probably it, concerned. He was like, sir, I do not believe this should be allowed. You know, uh, now well, yeah. So, so they they said they were going to do this, and I forget the entire cast of characters who were there. Actually, hold on, was Anton Lavey there? Uh, I don't think I ever heard of that. We've definitely stumbled across some interesting names. I mean, we already mentioned Allen Ginsberg was there. Ed Sanders, who Mm -hmm. uh, the lead singer of the Fugs, was there and participated in it and phil oaks was also as kind of part of the yippies um mm-hmm. basically oh there is a levitating the pentagon exorcism as politics an academic paper and abby hoffman jerry rubin there's some weird video with paul mccartney talking I feel about like this came up in a past exorcism. episode and there was someone weird who was there ginsburg abby hoffman and ed sanders are like the people most commonly associated with it and ed sanders is interesting he wrote the family which you know was about the manson family and i don't know he got like threatened into like deleting the chapter about the process church connections and he was also on that very interesting weird firing line episode with jack kerouac i think we Mm -hmm. didn't we mention this before like in 1967 or 68 where william f buckley it's like it's basically like this weird lineup of all like covert CIA people. So you have like William F. Buckley, and then you have like alcoholic Jack Kerouac, like a year or two mm-hmm. before he died, 
complaint like talking about how he's a catholic now and like uh yeah. you know hates communism and then ed sanders was there and he was talking about how they were going on a tour of europe and like i don't know man we might just freak out over the border <laughs> into czechoslovakia and then jack Kerouac's like you gonna bring cabins <laughs> you know yeah and then they point out that alan ginsburg's <laughs> like in the audience watching and jack Kerouac's like reaction to ginsburg is like very weird like they used to be best friends, but he seems like sussed out by Ginsburg now. Mm-hmm. And they're just like the vibes are all fucking off. So I've always like been hmm, Ed Sanders is kind of interesting, maybe a little bit sus. I mean, he had a very political, almost like proto punk, like freak rock band, the Fugs, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that made songs like CIA man and stuff. Um, let me see. Wow, I mean, this the abstract from this article, Levitating the Pentagon, Exorcism as Politics, Politics as, as Exorcism, by Joseph P. Laycock at Boston University, talks about the exorcism. Most historians have regarded this event as a put-on, or at best, as performance art. This article takes seriously the nominal status of the ritual as a sacred or magical event. It argues that the organizers were utilizing innovative strategies of social action to alter the terms of debate regarding the Vietnam War. Wow. Inasmuch as these strategies drew on, quote, secret insights into the nature of social reality, they were seen as magical and in continuity with pre-modern esoteric traditions. Finally, it is argued that the new left turned to such tactics out of a deep frustration with traditional forms of democratic political engagement. Uh-huh. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? I mean, that sounds like accurate largely, but I don't know. I think that the whole thing was like ultimately like a meaningless stunt that changed nothing and is just like curiosity that we talk about now. And like, if anything, it was just like sus <laughs> and like a weird activity that if it was if there was any like occult like power to it, it probably like fueled the Pentagon. <laughs> It probably like well, poured yeah. <laughs> like occult energy into the Pentagon. That's why I wanted like, to know if Anton Lavey was there because like yeah. if they have a Satanist doing this, then it's like, um, guys, like I don't think this is actually. They, I mean, I would almost respect it more if they brought like a rabbi, a priest, and like an imam like there to like officially exercise. <laughs> like you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like that would have been a little bit more. But instead, it kind of did. Uh, I guess this this paper says that. It marked a transition from like the politics of, I don't know, the politics of something, the politics of confrontation, but like also the politic of everyone acting like a weird freak. Well, no, it wasn't really was the like politics of confrontation people. either. It's like the, it, like really it makes the Pentagon seem like accessible and like more friendly. Like it makes yep. it seem approachable and like funny and cute. Isn't it kind of similar to the site of the U.S. Army Medical Corps helicopters landing at Woodstock to hand out PB&J sandwiches and God knows yes. what else? You know what I mean? Mm, like, yeah. cheer for the Army Medical Corps. They're here to save us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which Thank I guess, I, I feel like there there was at least some hippies out there that are like, that's how we really win. Like, you know what I mean? It was just, just like, right. what? Like, that doesn't make any... This is, this is starting to get very disordered. And maybe maybe it's true that it was out of a sense of, like, frustration... And I would say desperation to basically find some way to, I don't know, undermine like the machinery of the war that was just like trucking along. I mean, the fact that Phil Oaks by like 67, roughly, by the time of this levitation thing was saying things like, don't bring any of those old left slogans. And he wasn't even <laughs> yeah. referring to like old 1930s left. He was referring to 
hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Yeah. Which was like probably started in like 1965. So he's talking about something that's like two years old and he's like, that's ancient. You know, yeah. now we have to like, that's not working. It's It really shows a little bit of like left adventurism perhaps or maybe mm-hmm. just sort of like a frustrated sock dem kind of uh, like once the illusion of making change through the electoral process is like foreclosed people can kind of have a freak out because i don't know yeah i mean i guess he didn't embrace like revolutionary left terrorism or anything like that but at the same time anyways i think but you I know mean, talking about yeah, how we kind of talked about revolutionary left terrorism a few times but i think it was like maybe a bit tongue, tongue-in-cheek i don't know um i think so i think so yeah so, okay, there's some interesting insights from this article from Jerry Rubin's girlfriend, though, that, again, kind of like the 2010 documentary is, like, very optimistic and boomery about, like, how effective all this was, but mm-hmm. maybe isn't. Um, I, one thing that jumped out at me, one of the organizers of this, like, Stop the Draft week, because there's, like, a bunch of protests happening, of which the levitation was a small part, uh, she writes that Dave Dellinger, who had invited us, uh, I had invited us to come east, was out of the country when the uh, the conflict erupted. I forget what it was. Yeah, I, I, there's beefing in between the movement um, and whatever. <clears throat> she says that he was uh, Dave was a very respected longtime peace activist and editor of Liberation Magazine. He was the people's ambassador for peace with a gentle, friendly demeanor, very much the consensus maker. He was the perfect coordinator, but also hard as nails in his own way. Dave very much wanted to see the anti-war movement advance, quote, from protest to resistance. He had no problem personally with going to jail. In fact, he had been imprisoned for close to two years for being a conscientious objector in World War II. (laughs) (laughs) We counted on Dave to absorb and deflect the anger of the Moab regulars, but unfortunately he was not around for this skirmish. So, yeah, so this guy, just like Lou Hill at KPFA, you know, proud, conscientious objector in (laughs) World War II. World War II, yeah. A real pacifist. Um, Yes. You know, he's not messing around. No, So, yeah. So I guess you know, she talked about how there was like there were these over 40 tight people who were censoring us and holding us back. And the young people wanted to be more, you know, basically hardcore, more rock and roll, more confrontational. Mm-hmm. She said, I was moving away from the quote straight left. I feel a need to explain that further since many books in the period, often written by academics who were cut out of the same mold as the straight left, underestimate what people like us were trying to do and what we were able to accomplish. I am often asked, were you really a yippie? What would be the draw of sex, dope, and rock and roll for a person like you? How could you make the mistake of elevating the hippie phenomenon beyond that? But I looked at it this way. For the first time, the opportunity seemed to exist to really connect with masses of people in our society. There were thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people who were alienated from America. And it wasn't an opportunist connection. We really were a part of them and they of us. We had shared values, value that appeared to be different from the dominant society, from the older generation. A large number of young people had dropped out of society, rejecting the roles that had been assigned to them, just as we were. In some ways, they were more communistic than we were. They lived communally, sharing food and material goods. They spoke of peace and love, not war. They believed in living for the moment and exploring with their senses and valued joy, laughter, and the human imagination. They unapologetically preferred smoking marijuana above guzzling alcohol. Hawk. 
They yeah. hated the police. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, hate, yeah, that's one thing, right? Uh, yeah, they hated well, the police. It, you know, like, uh, yeah, uh, if it's a choice between the two, yeah, I think, yeah, maybe even Phil Oaks would agree in his later years, or if he could, if he's looking up or down at us now. He could have yeah. maybe just smoked a joint and just calmed down and stopped guzzling. Uh, stopped guzzling all the it, booze yeah. And so, the Valium. Yeah. Not mm. good. Um, but anyway, she goes on. They hated the police and authorities as much as we did and were not afraid to commit illegal acts. We had a lot in common. Hippies were developing countercultural institutions. In New York, there was a free clinic and a free store. There were alternative newspapers like the East Village Other and the Rat. <laughs> Me, cool. Oh, the, the Rat yeah, uh, is like a, cool. yeah. Yeah, that's what I want. That, I trust yeah. the Rat. Uh, yeah. The, <laughs> the skinny and what's really going down. Yes. Um, major rock bands identified with this counterculture. Country Joe and the Fishes' Vietnam Rag was played everywhere, and the Jefferson Airplane's Got a Revolution became an anthem. All these people identified with the counterculture. It was a much broader cross-section of America than those involved in, quote, straight politics. It was a force bigger than the Socialist Club, bigger than the Socialist Workers' Party, or the Communist Party, and was way more fun. <laughs> Hippies <laughs> seemed to be in it with the whole of their hearts, minds, and bodies. They it were not going fun. to school yeah. or work in the daytime and then having a, an occasional meeting or demonstration. They were talking about changing their entire lives. For me, this resonated with what Paul Potter and SDS had been saying about turning our lives over to building a movement. It made sense in terms of what Stokely Carmichael of SNCC had encouraged us to do, to go into the white community and influence consciousness and behavior. We thought that as part of the political element of this counterculture, we could influence it towards a politically revolutionary direction. If there could be a melding of the new left and the hippies, it would be social and political dynamite. We were not totally wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay, interesting. <laughs> this is also funny. Yeah, I had dropped out of graduate school, and now I dropped out of the MOBE. I spent time with Ad Abby, getting to know the free community on the Lower East Side, and talking up the Pentagon action wherever we went. Abby knew everybody. Many of his friends were cultural icons, opinion setters who influenced thousands of other people, particularly youth. Poet Allen Ginsberg, satirist Paul Krasner, radio MC Bob Fass of WBAI, Pacifica, and folk singer mm -hmm. Phil Oaks. And so, yeah, so they, you know, basically they hung out a lot of time with Paul Krasner, Phil Oaks, and many others in St. Mark's Place, um, oh, you know, yeah. home of the crust punks, and they'd smoke place, weed yeah. and, yeah. you know, talk, talk, talk. Uh, this, this one thing is interesting <laughs> to bring up in relative to McGowan's whole thing. It just, I thought it was notable. She says, I don't think we ever talked about the past, our families, relationships, past academic or career paths. We were single-mindedly focused on the present. I was aware that all four of us, Jerry, Abby, Anita, and I, and actually Phil Oaks, were raised in Jewish families. If I didn't know it then, I later found out that all three of us, Abby, Anita, and I, were dropouts of psychology grad school. But these Prince were not Ray things that we ever dwelled like, upon. would be having, like, a fit right now. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, this just, is, yeah. Um, just, what, Prince Ray? Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. but these things, uh, but these were not were things all, we ever dwelled upon. They were all upon. cyclos, and they were They're all, all cyclos. Uh, They're all cyclo dropouts from, like, yeah. the MK Ultra era. Um, mm. Yeah, but these were not things we ever dwelled upon as we were so busy living in the present and trying to prepare for the near future. So, yeah, that that is an interesting thing where, and I do believe, like, that can be a phenomenon. I I don't know. I just think about like times in my life where I've gone into like new places or met a bunch of new people. And you don't always like whip out your early life, like Wikipedia bio and are like, this yeah. is, you know what I mean? Like, and especially mm -hmm. in this moment, I wonder if that's like 
there's a kind of a deliberate aspect to this culture being so focused on the present that it's not because I don't know. It's like think about somebody like Charlie Manson, like walking mm-hmm. around and it's like it's sort of it sounds kind of like people vaguely knew about maybe he'd done some time in the joint or whatever. But it's just like, oh, he's just a guy like he's just showing up like it's all about who you are in the moment. So don't worry about like what kind of sus fucking like yeah. army intelligence background somebody has because right. now they're a hippie. So like it doesn't matter. Like this whole culture is predicated on like breaking from whatever you were doing before. So it seems like maybe there was an assumption that everybody participating in the scene, like it didn't matter what their background was, mm-hmm. even if they were like an Operation Chaos like performance <laughs> or yeah. something, you know? Right. Like that to that extent, it seemed like nobody. It seems like there was a lack of vigilance. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Maybe. Um. Going on with that. that makes so. Sense. I mean, she talks a lot more about like the the protest itself. And on October twentieth, nineteen sixty seven, there was at least a hundred thousand people there. One thing that I thought was funny because if if people know one thing about this protest, well, before that, okay. So what she says is that the levitation of the Pentagon was one of the first successful aspects of the day, providing creative imagery of the fusing of politicos and acid heads into an activist community. Ed Sanders and Tuli Kupferberg, interesting name, of the Fugs, decked out in multicolored capes, provided the music. Allen Ginsberg opened the ceremony with what would become his hallmark, Om. Others no. led incantations of out, demons out. Truthfully, I think the actual nuts and bolts of a levitation were not that high on my interest list, since my mind is foggy on the facts. Or perhaps the levitation has just been overshadowed in my mind by the following events. See, they all do this, by the way. Abby Hoffman did this in the Chords of Fame like docu-play, where he brought up levitating it and said that they did it, but he's like, but I can't talk about uh, the particulars of yeah, how we did details, it. You know, right, yeah. they all are like trolling that like they actually did levitate it. And um, I don't know why. (laughs) I guess it's funny. I have no idea. So then, okay, but then the big moment was when the revolutionary contingent of SDS uh, broke down the fence and got right up to the Pentagon. And then a bunch of troops, uh, you know, basically came out and were lined up at the entrance. And there was this big standoff. And that's when there was a very iconic moment that I think everybody remembers where a young hippie uh you know basically took like a daisy and put it in the barrel of a national guardman's rifle and Mm -hmm. it signified the moment where everything you know changed and she says that you know some 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 of the guards actually like ditch their uniforms and their guns afterwards they're like i don't want to be associated with this army anymore you know and stuff like that because the crowd was chanting uh i guess the berkeley non-student activist and future yippie Stu albert addressed the troops that were there and said, I went to PS206 in Brooklyn, and when I was in school, nobody liked the monitors. They were kids like us, but they worked for the strict teachers. We didn't like them when we were kids, so why should we like them now? We always consider the monitors to be finks, and now you guys are acting like monitors. Join us. And then the crowd started chanting, wow. join us, join us. It's like a weird flex of like 
it, like this is the first like Marvel generation that is like stuck in childhood mm-hmm. of like you're yeah. a hall monitor, you're working for the grown ups. Like, like yeah, like just imagining them having like an epiphany where they're like, Oh my god, like I've become the teacher. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's like oh. a, a completely immature way to like approach yeah. life. It's like, like I don't want to be a hall monitor. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, like kind of insulting to their intelligence, honestly. Yeah. A little bit of the fact that some of them are fucking drafted and like forced to like yeah. be there. So anyways, but the the most interesting thing about this moment. Yeah, it's true. Like that's totally a projection that that's their thought process. <laughs> like, yeah, they're real. Yeah. They're coming to the realization like they probably like most people don't think about like hall monitors in high school like that much but i don't know for some uh people who are still in college i guess you know Mm -hmm. but students are going to change everything yeah they are right um Mm -hmm. and okay so this is the this was a weird thing that i did not know about that that iconic moment with the hippie putting the flower in the barrel so she says we were right up against the troops when super joel one of our one of the earlier levitators, okay, so he's involved with the levitation, stepped forward and placed a flower in the bayoneted gun barrel of one of the soldiers. It became an iconic image. Other protesters followed suit. And she puts in parentheses, this is a big parenthetical. Paul Krasner later pointed out that Super Joel's grandfather was the mafia boss Sam Giancana and that Super Joel had dropped out of the family business. Huh. Okay. Um, okay. And after, given the events of the shooting of the last week, I have to read the next sentence, contractually obligated. The confrontation mm-hmm. between demonstrators and troops lasted, how many hours do you think it lasted, Khaled? Um, is that a trick question where it didn't last hours? Um, well, think about the city they're in and all the uh, Masonic construction everywhere and the Pentagon mm-hmm. itself. How many hours do you think this protest <laughs> Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, three, uh, three hours. No, no, no. close. Seven. 33 hours. Oh, wow. 33 exactly. Hours. 33 hours. Wow. <laughs> exactly. Not... 33 hours. Just like the shooter fired 33 shots in the subway. Exactly. And dropped his gun. Oh, um, wow. I didn't realize that he fired. It said someone said he fired exactly 33 shots. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, they, they, that's the they official ca- someone story. Someone counted. Um, <laughs> um, well, yeah, someone got uh, 33 shell casings. Okay. So, okay. So yeah, that, but hold up. Wait. So like one of the core hippies there and the one that started this like iconic trend, I actually don't know if it's like super joel himself that is in like the picture because other people started doing it after him but wait so the grandson of sam giancana was there with all of them and was like a leader of the, like i'm not saying that you know sam giancana's grandson can't become a hippie or have ge- a genuine leftist awakening or something like that but given uh-huh. that isn't this one of the mafia bosses that is like uh kind of implicated in the jfk assassination yeah well if Phil i Oaks was also like kind of like weirdly he mentioned the mafia a couple of times right he mentioned it in like his last interview and he also like brought yeah, up yeah he did the, yeah he brought up the mafia in another like actually weirdly like a, an interview he wrote like kind of with himself like uh in uh yeah in his writings he wrote like a fake interview uh between him and like uh you know a hypothetical fan and they asked how would you describe yourself and he goes uh ich bin un berliner <laughs> but um, yeah okay this is uh, this is fucking bizarre i yes. found a huff post article from 2008 called tom waits meets super joel um, okay <laughs> and i guess uh it just says like the protester they're talking about a photo um 
the oh yeah no it really is a recent a recent obituary in the LA Times began Bernie Boston the photojournalist who captured the iconic image of a young Vietnam War protester placing a flower in the barrel of a rifle held by a National Guardsman died the photo known as Flower Power became Boston's signature image and earned him acclaim in the world of photojournalism taken during an anti-war march to the Pentagon on October 22nd 1967 the photo was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize the protester not identified was Joel Tornabene, I guess is how you would say it. Uh, In my autobiography, Confessions of a Raving Unconfined Nut, Misadventures in the Counterculture... This is oh, this is by Paul Krasner. I described <laughs> ravings Joel. of an unconfined. Oh, yeah, <laughs> okay, all right. I mean, this is the guy who published May Brussel. Interesting guy, but like connected to literally everybody. So, Paul Krasner described Joel as an unheralded yippie organizer known as Super Joel. His grandfather was mafia boss Sam Giancana, but Super Joel had dropped out of the family business. Instead, he let his hair grow long and distributed LSD. Um, hmm. did he drop out of the family business if he's distributing? Okay, and anyways, the intelligence division of the Chicago Police Department warned Giancana that Super Joel shouldn't hang around with me. The cops were telling the mafia that I was a bad influence. It could have been worse. The FBI planned to neutralize Dick Gregory by alerting the mafia to his verbal attacks on the crime syndicate. Super Joel t- once told me, if it wasn't for acid... I with my Sicilian ancestry and you with your Jewish ancestry, we'd, we would never have become such close friends. And he kissed me <laughs> on the forehead, but that was okay. It meant love now, not murder. Wow. So he, he did get arrested at the uh, 1968 Democratic Convention. Uh, right. He yelled and gave the cops the finger through the cage door at the back of the paddy wagon. Got arrested three times that week. He was just another anonymous yippie. FBI FBI files indicated that the government wanted to indict 20 individuals for conspiracy to cross state lines, for inciting a riot. So he almost got indicted in like the Chicago 7 trial. I guess Mm -hmm. Super Joel's indictment was dropped when an attorney for Sam Giancana managed to persuade them that not only did Super Joel come from a, quote, socially prominent family in Chicago, but also that he was mentally incompetent to stand trial. However, in 2006, I learned that his sister Fran had said, our grandfathers were a Sicilian doctor and a Norwegian Irish carpenter. I can't imagine how anyone would actually believe that Giancana relationship. I contacted her immediately, apologizing for passing on false information, adding that although I included that story in my autobiography, recently I've had the rights reverted back to me and I plan to have it republished in an updated edition. So I certainly, I will certainly include a postscript revealing that hoax. Huh, this is weird. Wait, so did he lie? She said, I think that Joel must have had quite a good time with that Giancana connection hoax. I was first made aware of this story after his death in Mexico yeah, in 1993. Yeah, it was a hoax that they were related. He talked to his attorney. He said he seemed to be quite surprised to see a simple middle-class family home in Franklin Park rather than a River Forest mafia compound. I wasn't aware of the extent of this story until Prairie Prince, who I know Joel was close to for years, asked me a few years ago which side of the family was Giancana. Since then, I've seen your tale regarding his being moved to the unindicted co-conspirator list due to the grandfather connection. I'm embarrassed to admit that I believed it, I confessed, simply because Joel was extremely convincing when he told me. So I'm a professional prankster who got pranked himself, but I really had no way of double-checking his personalized put-on. Huh. And I guess, I don't know, Tom Waits, I guess, was also hoodwinked um, Mm -hmm. into thinking that he was the grandson of Sam Giancana. 
uh, because Tom Waits said he did some yard work for me and I hung out with him most of the time. Huh. Yeah. So wait, so is it true or I is guess it... it's not. Uh, I mean, well, everyone acted like it wasn't. Yeah. All the, Tom Waits, I guess. Tom Waits, I guess, did fall for it. It seems I'm not sure if he ever repudiated it, but he said he's in the concrete biz mob guy. He was the grandson of Sam Giancana from Chicago. Yeah. Um, he did some yard work for me, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he was a prominent yippie, but he was but, just being a puckish prankster. Um, that's yeah. that's very weird, though, from, that he was like, uh, so insistent. of a raving, unconfined nut. Yeah, the guy says, I'm embarrassed to admit I believed it by Paul Krasner. So I guess we don't know for sure. I could say, I mean, do you think later maybe her sister is just like, I want to disavow, like, I don't want to be connected to, like, a famous mobster. So I'm just going to say he made it all up. I don't know. Uh, it's hard to say. I'm um, not seeing proof, like, either way, you know. It's just the word of the sister. But, like, that's the thing maybe a lot of people would want to hide or not talk about. I guess, but he talked about it a lot. Or like he and he was very. It, in, but I guess, this is very yeah, similar, actually, pressure, to like Phil, yeah. o like what Phil Oakes would tell certain people that yeah. you know about his life that maybe uh, other people insist like could not be true, totally not, total bullshit, all that stuff. But well, they yeah. brought up the '68 convention there. He definitely also had like a puckish prankster element. Yeah, like the mafia mention I was gonna bring up in that interview was again. I think it had. It was sort of like a winking thing at JFK, actually. He mentions like a lot of his weird themes, his hatred of astronauts. Um, <laughs> he, yeah. Uh, Interesting. He, yeah. He, 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 he flipped on that one. Uh, at least it, his feelings about NASA uh, definitely changed over the years. Um, oh, did he at one time love NASA? Um, we'll get to it when, uh, okay. when, when we uh, get to Jim Glover's uh uh, claims. Uh. <laughs> yes, but, uh, but you know, he has this sort of fake interview with a fan and they ask, what's the most significant thing you ever did? Uh, racing, and he answers, racing into the Chamber of Commerce meeting in Wichita, Kansas, screaming, the Chinese are coming, the yellow bastards are here, millions of them swarming down Main Street trying to kill your mothers. And, you know, he poses to himself, like, as his fan, how did you get away with it? And he says, I left town in a police uniform disguised as the mafia. You know, just kind of like a weird, like quasi-nonsensical statement, but whatever. Yeah, he uh, seemed to get more and more into being like a goofy, absurdist, like prankster, like around yeah. the the high water mark of '68. But I he mean, was also like always like consumed with like uh, kind of like conspiracy thoughts and uh suspicions it seems yes yeah, so, so like, it's worth saying that everybody does say that about him that you know this is like widely basically agreed upon is that he always was basically a kind of it sounds like you know very like critical critical paranoid left-wing conspiracy theorist guy basically mm -hmm. right yeah. i think in bob dylan's memoirs it was like oh i'd be hanging out at like the gaslight which is the most hilariously named uh folk club in Greenwich yeah. Village, uh, right? It's just like so fucking sus. Like, yeah, why is it called a gaslight? And um, it's like <laughs> Phil Ox would always be bounding over my table, like talking about some government conspiracy or the other or something like that. Like he was always talking a conspiracy jive uh, about things, and and that was like in the early '60s. So it wasn't mm -hmm. just after like '68 and into the '70s. A lot of people said, you know, that he was talking about some pretty heavy duty stuff like both before and after 
um, the JFK assassination. And, you know, so like that was uh, and he definitely references it in a lot of his songs, like in his concert performances. He'll mention like how they killed Kennedy and stuff like that, like always a little bit obliquely. I don't mm-hmm. know if he ever did a song that was like, I'm going to totally spell it out, which is interesting because he had a lot of other songs that were kind of very direct. But yeah. uh, but he definitely was on that tip. He was not a like Chomsky in, in that way of being like, there was no conspiracy. Right. You know, but of course, like that did escalate after a while, like the, the level of conspiracy that he perceived um, did escalate. But like a big pivot point was the 68 Democratic conventions. Um, oh, it's also worth noting that he did meet he he met a lot of like the big leaders in the 60s. Like he did rallies. I mean, he played at rallies with like Martin Luther King. And he also did meet Bobby Kennedy once, like in the mid 60s. And he played him his song Crucifixion, which mm-hmm. uh, Phil Oaks believed was his masterpiece. And right. it, it's a very kind of, it's it's not a typical Phil Oaks song. It's much more yeah. orchestral. It's almost more in like a Judy Sill kind of tip. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's out there a little bit, but yeah. It, and kind, kind of, of like this religious Jesus. imagery. It's like Jesus and Kennedy like together, you know. And maybe himself. Um, yeah. And apparently he played it live on the guitar for Bobby Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy like realized in the song it was like about JFK and he like started crying. Wow. Or he like teared up, you know, he, like, he, mm. he became emotional. So, uh, and, and just like with JFK, you know, even though Phil was getting more and more radical, uh, he really, really, I heard some interviews with him, like in early 68 talking about like how fantastic it was that Bobby Kennedy has basically, because um, you know what? I think he played it for Bobby on the day that Bobby Kennedy came out and like officially announced he was against the Vietnam War. And mm. so Phil Oaks felt like he was sort of um, setting setting Bobby free from his brother's mistake by like playing him this song and I like, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. So he's very optimistic about Bobby Kennedy basically becoming president in 1968 and that this whole movement that he had been dedicating all of his energy to and all of his musical energy to uh, was going to have finally have a triumph and they were going to stop this war. And then 68 happens. Martin Luther King gets murdered. Bobby Kennedy gets murdered. And then he goes to Chicago for the 68 convention. And he's like there in the middle. I think he put on a big concert and was there in the middle of like the riots and everything else. I think he got, I think he got beat up and arrested um, and certainly witnessed people getting the shit beaten out of them by the cops and the nomination sort of just like stolen. I think he was still like, gu- gu- or he was still running around with the McCarthy people, you know, mm-hmm. and trying yeah. to get McCarthy nominated because he was at least an anti-war candidate. McCarthy kind of a weirdo became like bizarre and like, like a right-wing anti-communist later in his life. I think mm-hmm. some people said McCarthy was kind of like CIA, um, like a left CIA kind of candidate. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, he took the fall and he, he did a Bernie and then Humphrey, like the Biden of his day was like nominated. And yeah, this and, but that was like, yeah, like an absolute, like that, that was like what shattered him was like the 68 convention. Yeah. Absolute gut um, punch. Yeah. Um, and you could see it in his music too. His music abruptly changes after '68, and he, I think, his next wasn't his next album after that. Rehearsals for retirement. So a lot of the songs on that album are about 
the 68 riots and stuff. As I went out one evening to take the evening air, I was blessed by a blood red moon in Lincoln Park. The dark was turning. I spied a fair young maiden and a flame. spread their sheets upon the ground just like a wandering tribe and the wise men walked in their robes pierrot through Lincoln Park the dark was turning the towers trapped and trembling and the boats were tossed about when the fog rolled in and the gas rolled out from Lincoln Park the dark was turning like wild horses freed at last we took the streets of wine but I searched in she stayed behind in Lincoln Park. The dark was turning, turning. I'll go back to the city where I. But you can always already see a kind of ominous, you know, sort of thing in that the title of that album that even though how old is he? I don't even know if he's 30 at that point. But yeah, 1969. So he would have been like 29 years old. And uh, and the cover is Phil is a gravestone of Phil Oaks. Right. Mm, um, yeah. And it, it lists his date of death, uh, Chicago, Illinois. 1960 <laughs> right yeah and that was where like 
they had like the thing with the pig, right? That was like where yeah. the sort of yippy thing it sort of came to a head in a way. They did the whatever the pig prank. Uh, there was some kind the, of like fight over the pig too. At least in one of the documentaries that I watched, or like one something that I read, like there was an issue with the pig. Do you remember this? Where like one faction said that the pig was like too attractive looking that they that they obtained. Let me explain the pig prank so that people know what I'm yeah, talking about. There's a lot it was about like the they pig. like you know it was like a vermin supreme type thing. They're like this is our candidate, Pigamus Maximus. Or oh, that's whatever. right. Yeah, you they know, ran like, a pig for president. Pigamus the immortal or so, like something <laughs> like that. And like they got a pig to be like you know their candidate and. But, like, one faction of the group felt that, um, you know, the... Jerry Rubin thought the pig was too small and cute. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so, like, it wasn't, like, a good politician because it had to be, like, hideous and, and repulsive. Yeah. And that was also, like, when the whole singing... Because so there was another issue where, like, yeah, the, the, the singing socialist, like, you know, uh, actually, like, yeah, his band was called that for a while, but he, like, actually... Like someone like like sort of objected to it or something. Like someone said, like what what's that all about being a socialist? And then he made them yeah. change it to the Sundowners. The Sundowners, like, which yeah. is kind of a weird. It makes me think of like Sundown Towns, which is like racist yeah. and weird. Well, it makes like, me think about Joe Biden, honestly. Again, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. So yeah, Pegasus for president. Why vote for half a hog? Reuben posed when you can have the whole thing. And right. the, the cops were triggered, and you know, therefore, uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah don't, just all yeah. this kind of like this wacky theatrical shit. Yes, like, and that right was just. I mean, it is like awful that Herbert Humphrey just was like just thrust in there like totally illegitimately. Oh yeah. No, absolutely. Completely. Yeah. And it it proved that basically because George McGovern, you know, wanted to get rid of the National Guard or whatever and he was an SJW and he wanted to defund the police even though You mean McCarthy? uh, Well, I think that George McGovern was the one they said that about and, you know, well, as always the left was split, right, between George McGovern and, and McCarthy. Well, McGovern, I think McGovern ran, he put his name in contention in 68, but he wasn't really a serious candidate. He got the nomination in 72. And that's right, when he got the said, nomination like, in 72, but <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. that the fact that he did put his name in, like, did kind of, like, I mean, it was uh, significant. Like, uh, you know, he, he and McCarthy were kind of, like, put in together, or they were sort of um, viewed as a unit in some way, and I think that kind of it split the their block a bit, and also like I think yeah. Humphrey like called out McGovern like at the time. Uh, yeah. No, that's probably true. Yeah, no, it was it was basically a disaster. The Democrats really like threw that election pretty much, and like it should have not been hard for them to beat Richard Nixon, but they kind of did everything in their power to make sure that that's what happened. So you know he he's really fucking bummed out by this and kind of starts to go in a different creative direction and starts incorporating kind of a little bit. It reminds me also a little bit of Jim Sullivan, like going in this like kind of psychedelic orchestral kind of accompanied folk kind of direction. That's a little Mm -hmm. more, a little more out there. And I guess, you know, this is generally regarded as like probably his darkest album, yeah, according to English study scholar David Pachaski, songs English such study. as Pretty Smart on My Part and The Scorpion Departs But Never Returns functioned as art protest songs, 
The former was written from the perspective of a John Birch Society member who is paranoid <laughs> of switchblade-toting thieves, foreign operatives, dissident hitchhikers, and dominant large-breasted women, and acts on this paranoia by killing them and others with a rifle and his friends from the NRA. Pachaski interpreted the narrative as a psychological analysis finding insecurity to be the source of violence in the U.S. The latter song used the 1968 disappearance of the Scorpion nuclear submarine as an allegory for a modern lost generation who abandoned the U.S. in response to the Vietnam War. Right, that's oh, an interesting. That, yeah, I mean, he, had, he has a couple songs. Like, the Dollhouse is kind of a weird sus song. It seems like it's referencing like, the Valley of the Dolls and, mm-hmm. like, weird kind of like hotel california shit um the song i kill therefore i am <laughs> kind of self-explanatory uh, that one uh not really what what does i kill therefore i am about <laughs> um, um good question actually um uh, there uh, trying to find there was another song called i think other weird line and like his thing about you know the folk albums coming out in like 67 or whatever where he was like uh who was it the sort of folk musician who pioneered the new form of music death uh very sad yeah i it, it is interesting looking through some of the lyrics of rehearsals for retirement that even though he's kind of doing this in a probably like sar- more sarcastic kind of way it's almost like he's trying on the persona of john butler train in some of these songs like even though he's you know he's doing the thing where he's he's sarcastically singing as somebody to like make fun of them but like for I, I kill therefore I am. Meet the king of cowboys. He rides pale pony. He fights the bad boys. Brings them to their knees. He patrols the highways from the air. He keeps the country safe. the king of cowboys he rides a pale pony he fights the bad boys brings them to their knees he patrols the highways from the air he keeps the country safe from long hair i am the masculine american man i kill therefore i am i don't like the black man for he doesn't know his place take the back of my hand or i'll spray you with my mace i'm as brave as any man can be i find my courage through chemistry i am the masculine american man i kill therefore i am I don't like the students now. They don't have no respect. They don't like to work now. I think I'll wring their necks. They call me pig, although I'm underpaid. I'll show those faggots that I'm not afraid. I am the masculine American man. I kill, therefore I am. 
Farewell to the gangsters. We don't need them anymore. We've got the police force. They're the ones who break the law. He's got a gun, and he's a hater. He shoots first. He shoots later. I am the masculine American man. I kill. Therefore, I am. Uh, Farewell to the gangsters. We don't need them anymore. Interesting. A lot of, uh, yeah, I feel like a lot of folk musicians do that thing where they take on the persona of, like, you know, they ironically take on the persona of, like, someone... Uh, awful who like that you know they want to indict for whatever reason even Definitely. even uh get back you know get back was like an anti-immigrant like song ironically but like you know that i mean to well, i kill their boy credit does that, seem to but... you know come across a bit more clearly but yeah yeah actually i had never heard of barry sadler before so i thought that he was actually like being sincere or talking about someone who had died but have you ever heard of barry sadler no. um yeah, this guy who he mentioned, you know, he said, uh, who could forget Barry Sadler, America's leading soul singer, offering us a new form of music, death. Okay, but yeah, okay. this guy, yeah, like, if you look him up, like, he's basically, like, this maniacal, like, Green Beret guy. I don't know if he was in the Green Beret. No, he was. He was Green Beret <laughs> I love the first picture is, like, yeah. John Wayne in the Green Berets, basically, with, like, his, yes, his and military he's, like, dress picture. Yeah, he's, like, holding a guitar, like, strumming it while wearing his Green Beret uniform. Uh, he wrote the Ballad of the Green Berets, a yes. number one hit in 1966. Yeah, this guy seems like completely grown in a lab he seems like literally the ghost of kiev like it was person like died at age 49 after being shot in the head in guatemala city <laughs> jesus yeah Holy what the shit. hell wow yeah oh, this guess, seems guess like what he oh he was a radar technician in 1958 stationed in japan i bet you he knew lee harvey oswald this seems like, you know, like, uh, like, you know how the CIA and the DOD, like at one point had like totally separate drone programs that were like not coordinating with each other and like, yeah. you know, actually like came into conflict or like caused, you know, uh, disorder and confusion by like pursuing the same targets or whatever. Like this is like the, uh, like Phil Oaks is like the project of like the left CIA and this guy is yeah. like, I don't know, the in-house like army, like the cowboys singer. made this guy. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> army intelligence. Founded yeah, by exactly. Washington. They created yeah. this. This is like a Flynn, a Flynn bot. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Wow. <laughs> so he was in, he was involved in Vietnam. Holy uh, shit. He, so, yeah. Oh, like Phil his Oaks leg was, was like, were they wounded. Friends? He was severely wounded in the knee by a feces covered punji stick. Uh, while on a combat patrol in Pleiku in the Central Highlands. Jesus. And developed so he... a serious infection in his leg because someone oh hit him with a shit-covered stick. Barry Sadler was survived stick. by his yeah. wife, a daughter, and two sons, Thor and Baron. His son, Thor, what? served in the U.S. Army as a military intelligence officer. you got to be kidding me. Anyway, no, so, no. Thor yeah. Sadler. Interesting uh, tip, interesting person. Uh, Wait, so were they friends? Were they friends uh, or is he no, just No, but he was aware music? of him. Yeah, well, again, in the paragraph, he was talking about, like, the major aesthetic achievements of the musical scene, you know, like uh, Rubber Soul and California Girls. And then he says, like, and who could forget Barry Sadler, America's leading soul singer, offering us a new form of music, death. In view okay. of such an so erratic market, many people are asking, right. yeah, where is it all going? Many others are too high to care. This is when he says, you know, I think it's all a fantastic plot to the proceeds of all the marijuana sales in New York are actually supporting the war effort. So I feel like, yeah, he is being kind of sarcastic, like throwing them in with each other in a way. 
like this is basically American music is like Barry Sadler, like MK, yeah, kind like of. Ballad of the Green Berets bullshit. Yeah, or how can these contradictions like be reconciled where like these people are like all in the same scene kind of like, <laughs> yeah, like how can we like sit idly by while we see like this fool like strumming the Ballad of the Green Berets? Like, <laughs> and, but then, you know, who who was the star of the Green Beret movie? Yeah, it was John his Wayne, childhood like, hero, John Wayne. Wayne. Yeah. You're under arrest. Lock the doors. It worked. As you know, I'm a folk singer for the FBI. assassination called the crucifixion. Shouts to the shore 
of oblivion is drunk to the dregs and the merchants of the masses almost have to be begged till the giant is aware someone's pulling at his leg and someone is tapping at the door to dance and dance just to be true come dance dance gathers meaning and it spreads across the land the rewarding of his fame is the following of the man but ignorance is everywhere and people have their way success is an enemy to the losers of the day in the shadows of the churches who knows what they pray for blood is the language of the man the spanish bulls beaten proud to soon be gone the matador is beautiful a symphony of stars excitement is ecstatic passion places beds Gracefully bows to ovations that he gets But the hands that are plodding are slippery with sweat And saliva is falling from their smile So dance, dance, dance Teach us to be true soul is ripped apart and tossed into the fire it's the burial of beauty it's the victory of night truth becomes a tragedy limping from the light all the heavens are horrified they stagger from the side as the cross is trembling with desire Religious shame. Now who'd want to hurt such a hero of the game? But you know, I predicted it. I knew he had to fall. How did it happen? I hope his suffering was small. Tell me every detail, for I've got to know it all. And do you have a picture of the pain? So dance, 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 teach us to be true. Come dance, 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 cause we love you. But his glory is growing 
Speed of insanity, then he dies. 